Hello. Hello. Um, welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> welcome back to The Weirdest Thing podcast. Yep. My name is Amelia Ampuero. I am Scotty Milder. Yay. And, yeah, you're back. I am back. Um, yeah, sorry. Sorry for the last minute change of plans last time. Uh, fortunately, a uh, friend of the pod, Danielle Richardson, was just like. Danielle Richardson? <laughs> Danielle Robertson. <laughs> God damn it. I was like driving. 10 hours yesterday. Give me a break. Danielle Robertson. <laughs> leaving all of that in. Uh, I was able to step up to the plate. <laughs> I know we're we're on a quick turnaround, but if you can get that, because I was look, checking my phone to try and see when our last podcast was, when it was you and me, and I really feel like there was a really good, like, huh? like reaction (laughs) no there was there was (laughs) yeah oh Oh my god okay it's great scotty is back uh he is live and in person yeah Mm -hmm. our last our last podcast together was january 13th so we're wow so month 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 out yeah so uh we're super glad you're back we're back with some weird tales oh that's funny Mm -hmm. um (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> you do what you're wearing uh, yeah. from the internet and whatnot. Anything we need to like discuss before we hop into it? No, a, I don't think so. A new uh-huh. season of Yellow Jacket should be starting soon. Yes, 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 yes. In fact, I, I've been meaning to ask you if you knew because I keep forgetting to look it up. But okay, like end of up. end of February, isn't it? I thought so. Um, hold on, let me do this. Yeah. Hmm. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. March 26th. Mm, so, a month and a half away. It's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. It's coming. In, in the meantime, I know you don't spoil anything because I have not, I've only watched the first episode, but you were watching Last of Us, weren't you? Yes. Is it as good as everyone's saying? It's it's really good. Okay. It's I wa- really good. I watched I watched the first episode and then a whole bunch of shit in my life kind of imploded all at yes. once. Yes. Yes. Um. So I have not had a chance to <laughs> catch yeah. up with it. Yeah. But I've been really like interested in like what I'm here. It sound got like I'll I'll be honest. Like my first reaction when they were said they were doing it was like, do we need another? Yeah, I know it's cordyceps and not like actual zombies, but like, do we need another Walking Dead? And I... then everything I'm hearing is like that's not what it is no and that's the thing right is that like i am i'm a big weenie as we know from all of the times that i'm like wait Mm -hmm. i close my windows and so when you're telling (laughs) a spooky story and like set my alarm um (laughs) that was one of my favorite comments we've ever gotten on an episode i I think were you talking about the i think you were talking about the black eyed children and i was like wait i'm gonna set my alarm and somebody quoted that and then it was like and then you heard the beeps and it was like the sad face and i was like that's that was my life that was my life that day yes so i as we know, I'm a big weenie and mm. I'm not a huge gamer person. Mm-hmm. I know that there are a bunch of people out there that are like, it's not exactly following the game. I don't know. what. Yeah, to, I, how can it exactly follow the game? No, like, I don't understand how you want it to do that. I, I have I very think, little sympathy for that. Argument. I think 
the show is it's really well done. It's really well acted. Uh, my understanding of it is, is that there's a lot of like cool little Easter eggs from the game mm-hmm. in the show. Pedro Pascal is like chef's kiss. What is her name? Bella Ramsey. Yes. Doing like an unbelievably good American dialect for mm-hmm. a 19 year old Brit. Right? right. She's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never actually played the game myself. I'm, I'm also not a big gamer, but I've like watched bits of it. I kind of knew what it was. Same. I will say, like, I what found I it have, terrifying. The game. What I've seen of the game is like real fucking impressive. So yeah, like, I understand why people are like real attached to it. But at the same time, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it's a new it's a new medium. It's different actors. It's gonna be it's you gotta you yeah. just gotta let it be its own thing. I'm real excited that Melanie Linsky is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, our girl Melanie Linsky. Uh, yes, uh, she is in it. Uh, yeah, like every, every everybody's just real good. Mm. Um, yeah, so. I really lo- I loved the pilot. Like I would I would have kept watching it. It's just everything got real mm-hmm. real weird around here. But like um, I will I will get back to it. I'll probably at this point I think I'm my plan is just to wait till it's over and then binge the whole thing. So I'm trying to avoid yeah. spoilers. But okay, no I also spoilers. learned. Post Game of Thrones, I kind of learned that that's just like a fool's errand, and don't worry about it. If something gets spoiled, it gets spoiled. I think. Not, I think. I'm not gonna, like, have right. A I think just it. because, like, if there's really stuff that I don't want spoiled, it, you just have to like. I, I'm just trying like, not not go on the internet for a little while. Yeah, I'm just trying to avoid like recaps. And so far, it hasn't been. There was something that happened in Game of Thrones world where. People act. Same thing happened weirdly in Sons of Anarchy fandom, where Ugh. people like could not wait to spoil shit on mm-hmm. like Facebook. Maybe it's just I'm not on Facebook as much anymore. I don't know, but I'm not seeing the spoilers for The Last of Us. So yeah, hopefully it stays that way. Nobody well, start adding me on Twitter or whatever. And and I think <laughs> like I don't know that it's the kind of. I mean, granted, we're. Four, four or five episodes in. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's anything that could really be spoiled. At the, like, you know, I mean, it's a show about the collapse of civilization, right. clearly, you know. Um, and I don't know that there's been anything where it's been like, oh, my fucking like God. Major twist kind of thing, right? Precisely. Yeah. I've yeah. got to turn my shiatsu massager back on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> um, there you go. Yeah, so that's good. There's actually a bunch of uh, I'm you know you know that I'm always complaining about how I don't have anything to watch, and there's a lot of stuff mm. coming out right now. Uh, first half of the fourth season of You came out. Um, mm. Oh, that's my, right on my birthday. Uh, right. So that was my gift to myself is that I binged the entire first half of the fourth season that day, and then next season of Ted Lasso is coming out March fifteenth. Mm-hmm. The second half of You is also coming out in March. Mm-hmm. Um, the limited series Daisy Jones and the Six, which I'm super, super oh, excited right. about. Yeah, yeah. No, that's is, one of your favorite books. Mm-hmm, is coming out March 13th, I think. March 3rd, 13th, something like that. Yellow Jackets. We've got a bunch of good what's happening with this. Well, I've got here. I've got one coming out. The Consultant uh, coming out on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, I think at the end of the month. Okay. Uh, you're giving me the quizzical look. It yeah. stars uh, Christoph Waltz or Schultz Waltz. No, he plays Schultz in Django and Chains. Uh, okay. But Christoph Waltz, that's his name. Yes. And it's based on a novel, which I'm about halfway through by a writer named Bentley Little, who's a pretty beloved horror writer, but kind of he's like one of those, if you're 
a horror fan, you might know his name, but outside of the genre, you probably wouldn't. Okay. And I believe this is the first thing he's ever written that's being adapted. So that's cool. pretty cool. But I'm reading the book and I'm like, I have a hard, I am imagining it's going to be a pretty loose adaptation. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in the book that I'm like, I don't think that'll exactly translate. But we'll see. I'm really excited mainly because of the casting. I love uh, that Christoph Waltz guy. Yeah, he's fantastic. Just uh, about everything. He's He's somebody who I feel like every time I see him on st- on on stage on film, there is an element of like I'm having so much fun, which mm-hmm. is just a joy to watch. Sidebar: I had sent you that documentary. I sent you and my brother that documentary about Pennywise, right? Right. I haven't watched that yet, but I'm real excited to watch it. <laughs> I w- I had started. I fell asleep to it oddly enough because it's just like a making of, mm-hmm. you know. And it's talking with like all of the you know the actors that were in the mini series um, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And it's just you know like. <laughs> Seth Green is on. He's like, we were fucking nuts, man. Like, <laughs> doing all this stuff. But it was so funny because I had sent that link to you and then I was working. I'm currently in the middle of cutting the Bard Crawl adaptation of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream to send out so we can do that thing. And I was typing, I was like, you know, getting it, I was writing it down. And I somehow, I meant to hit like, I meant to do it so that the text would be bold, but instead I pasted and it, mm. it, it was the link to that penny. documentary there's just a big banner page and i was like i was so tempted to leave it in just as like an easter egg for the cast just for them to be like why the fuck is there a pennywise link in the pdf don't worry about it just go check it out all right let's get kicking Let's do this. So Let's, I think uh, you're going first. Is that yes? Uh, yes, I am going first. I'm not necessarily going to start with a cold open, but I am going to start with a question. That there's no way to ask this question without it sounding weird. So just understand that I'm not meaning it to be weird. But Scotty, what are you wearing? <laughs> uh, a weird cadet like army hat and uh-huh. a weird tails t-shirt and pajama pants. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> the second thing you mentioned, the weird tails t-shirt. Uh, mm-hmm. That particular article of clothing, what percentage of your wardrobe does that particular article of clothing make up? The t-shirt. <laughs> like 90, maybe? Fantastic. 95. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's probably like, you know, not really that weird of a number. So today mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you about the history of the t-shirt. Nice. Sources for this are Wikipedia, Vogue, Medium, Real Thread, Contagious News, The Talk To, and Classique. Okay. So let's do, let's start, of course, like, because this is technically the subject of this story. Let's start with the history of the t-shirt. The garment that we today know as the t-shirt has been part of human clothing since ancient times. Its -hmm. predecessor was, of course, the tunic. And that was a Mm T-shaped long garment worn by men made of woven cotton or linen. And the whole reason for this Mm -hmm. um, was... It, it like wearing that gave you a layer of protection between the body and the garments worn over it. So okay, maybe you weren't bathing all of the time. Maybe you just had like <laughs> your one good, like fancy outer tunic, you know, whatever. Right. So the reason for that inner under tunic was you could wash it as often as you wanted to. It would keep the grime from your own body on getting onto your outer clothing. It would also mm-hmm. protect uh, your body from the grime of that was getting on your clothing. I don't know if this is correct. Whenever I hear the word tunic, I always think of what Andre the Giant is wearing in The Princess Bride. Yeah. I don't know why I make that connection. but <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think technically, I mean, I'm trying to think. 
because he was wearing pants with it. But like, you know, Jesus wore a tunic. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the apostles. If you watch Friend of the Pod, Abe Jalad on his show, The Chosen, all tunics. Mm-hmm. I always want to know if they're wearing, like, what they're wearing under, like, clearly, you know, they're wearing <laughs> something under their tunics. But, like, historically, I'm like, mm-hmm. I wonder what they would have been wearing under their yeah. tunics or if they were just playing, playing fast and loose. <laughs> <laughs> under that Jesus, under that linen. Jesus free balling under the linen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like that makes sense. That tracks. Mm-hmm. So the gonna... t-shirt as we know it today evolved from undergarments that were popular in the 19th century. What we had first was a, a piece of clothing called the Union Suit, which was essentially a long underwear onesie. Mm-hmm. And that was originally designed for women to wear during the U.S. clothing reform efforts. Mm. I'd never heard of this before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, I like I had to stop myself from going down a complete rabbit hole. I was going to say that sounds like that could be. Yeah. So the Victorian dress reform effort, also known as the rational dress movement, came about in the middle to late Victorian era. And it was basically when folks like got together and they were like, our clothing is fucking impossible. Like, why are we, (laughs) what are we, why is there so much stuff? Um, A reminder, bustles and and all that shit. Like a reminder from my deadly fashion story, the 1850s Mm to the 1880s were full, like crinolines that caught on fire. Mm -hmm. big old bustles like you just mentioned corsets to form tiny waists um so the the dress reform movement was it was really more concerned with women's clothing reformists Mm -hmm. said that the clothing of the day was cumbersome that it was prompted by vanity and foolishness and even harmful to the wearer's health which again see my deadly fashion story. Right. Um, a large part of their platform was to find a re- uh, was to provide a replacement for the corset with the emancipation waist or liberty bodice, and this was mm. a tight sleeveless vest. Vest is in quotation marks mm-hmm. uh, that buttoned up the front, and it also had rows of buttons along the bottom for attaching petticoats and skirts. Okay. The bodice evolved into the union suit and dudes were like, that looks comfy as hell. And so they, (laughs) they co-opted it. Can I just jump in real quick and just say, I love the word bodice. You do. It is is just one of those words. Every time I hear it, I'm like, it it just feels naughty. It's just one of those (laughs) words. You just feel naughty when you say it. Just bodice. Anyway. (laughs) My best friend, this guy that she was dating in college. I don't know what he was. I don't remember why he was. It was, it was. I think he was talking about like, maybe me and my friend were like, we're just going to spend the night in. We're going to like get into our PJs and like watch a movie or something. And he Mm -hmm. was like, ooh, are you all going to get in like your negligees? And we were like, what the fuck? (laughs) That's very typical. (laughs) Like, what do you think is, and I think that he didn't quite understand what a negligee was. Mm -hmm. I think he thought that meant like little girly pajamas, but not Mm -hmm. like a negligee. And we were like, no, (laughs) we're not um (laughs) okay so the dudes see this uh liberty bodice they're like that looks dope let me have it Mm -hmm. which is also just interesting especially just like in the climate that we're in right now where people are so like there is a certain section of the population that is like men wear men's clothing women wear Mm -hmm. women's clothing there is no in between if you if you do you're a pervert and i'm like you're a groomer 
Right. And I'm like, there was a time when men were literally like that women's underwear looks so comfy that I would like to wear it. And nobody was like, you weirdo pervert. Right. I'm just saying the union suit over. Yeah, just give it to us. So the union suit was, and as soon as I say this, I know it's going to draw up an image in your head. The union suit was traditionally made of red flannel. Mm -hmm. It covered wrists to ankles. It buttoned up the front and it had the button up flap covering the butt, sometimes known as the access hatch, drop seat, (laughs) fireman's flap, or crap flap. <laughs> so, so we've all seen we've, we've all seen, seen this think of like an old like 49er right that's what i always mm-hmm. think you know with like a beard and his hat and his like boots i feel like there were some like dr seuss books with kids running around in that shit and their butts hanging out but maybe yes I'm, yeah yeah, uh, we actually had an act in the Ugly Sweater Review this year where one of the performers was wearing like a a sexy union suit. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and they had the little butt flap as well. So eventually the union suit was cut into two separate pieces at the waist with the top being long enough to tuck into the waistband of the bottoms. You mm-hmm. still had those buttons appear at the top. So it was like a Henley. Mm-hmm. Right. What we know is the modern T-shirt started to really evolve around 1890 around the 1898 Spanish American War. Wow, the that's early. It seems early to me. I don't know. Do you, like we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> um, the Cooper Underwear Company, which I believe is now Haynes. Mm. I'll fact check myself on that, but I believe it is now Haynes ran an ad announcing, quote, a new product for bachelors. And the ad was a side by side before and after picture. The before picture was a sad man who had lost Mm. all of the buttons on his shirt and it was being Mm. held together with safety pins. And the after picture showed a virile man complete with like a (laughs) robust mustache um, in the bachelor undershirt and it was advertised (laughs) as being which was like you know a t-shirt and it was advertised as being stretchy enough to pull over the head quote no safety pins no buttons no needle no thread so this was something that was really marketed Mm -hmm. at unmarried men who didn't have sewing skills because that was the big thing with the buttons and stuff is that like you were a man of course you wouldn't know how to sew what are you going to do when all the buttons pop off your union suit I do just love the way that like men seem to be able to turn anything into like a big dick contest mm. where it's just like oh, you have no idea the virile man in the t-shirt oh you have no idea we haven't even we haven't even hit like the tip of the iceberg <laughs> yet okay uh-huh. so in 1913 the u.s navy handed out these bachelor undershirts as undergarments they were mm-hmm. crew necked short-sleeved white cotton shirts to be worn under your uniform well sailors question yeah. yes i've never known what this crew neck that's just like a regular t-shirt yeah like this is a crew neck like v-neck is the v V v-neck is a v this is a crew okay yeah you have every i think everything you own is a crew neck okay And interestingly enough, the V-neck was actually invented so that if you wanted to wear an open coll- an open collared overshirt, you wouldn't mm. see the crew neck. You wouldn't see the, the neck that's, of the T-shirt mm, visible. That's, that's clever. Mm-hmm. So sailors and Marines working on submarines and in tropic climates started to take off their uniform jackets, working and dirtying just the undershirt. And from there, the T-shirt became popular with all tradesmen. And that includes farmers because they were easily fitted and cleaned and because they were cheap. 
They right. also got really popular with little boys because we know little boys are disgusting. They need <laughs> clothing that can be easily thrown in. I don't think anybody's had a washer, but could be easily washed. Right. The word T-shirt became part of American English by the 1920s. And by the Great Depression, it was the default garment worn while doing farm or ranch work, mm-hmm. which a lot of people were going out to go do that because of the Great Depression. So that's why I think I thought when you said the 1800s. I thought that seemed early. And I think it's because I associate like the t-shirt with like the Great Depression. Like just, I just associate like images of like farmers wearing t-shirts and shit. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it was around before then, but Mm -hmm. it had like an, it was a niche market. It was mostly like military people. Right. Okay. Were getting them. Um. I lost my place. I'm so sorry. Okay. So again, t-shirt great. It's a lightweight fabric that um, modestly covered the torso. This is Mm -hmm. a big deal. And this is the thing that you need to understand about the t-shirt is that if you were to currently, Scotty, invent a time machine and go Mm -hmm. back to 1913 and be walking around in your weird tails t-shirt, everybody would look (laughs) at you like you were walking around in your underwear. It was Mm -hmm. underwear. Right. It wasn't something that was really meant to be seen. But when it started to come out, they were like, well, here we have, we have this, like, we have this that, you know, to like modesty wise, preserve men's (laughs) modesty. And so they can cover up their torsos with this. Preserve our innocence. Mm -hmm, Your innocence. So we can cover up the torso. Uh, In 1938, Sears and Roebuck started offering a white cotton gob shirt, gob being slang for sailor. Again, it said, quote, it's an undershirt. It's an outer shirt. Men were told that they could wear the gob shirt, quote, as an outer shirt for sports and for lounging or as an undershirt. It's practical, correct, either way. (laughs) Correct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So, again, they're really trying to be like, you can wear it so it isn't like wearing your underwear. Like, you can totally wear this while you're doing things. Post-World War II imagery showed T-shirt clad soldiers at war and the idea spread that T-shirts were connected to heroic masculinity. So they're, okay, so Mm -hmm. Sears even stated, quote, you don't need to be a soldier to have your own personal T-shirt. Okay. Okay? So that's kind of like what's happening with the T-shirt. And then Marlon Brando came along. (laughs) Now- The first known use of a T-shirt on film was in 1939 in The Wizard of Oz. Really? Mm -hmm. One of the farm people, maybe? No, I'll tell you. It's when they are in Oz and there Mm -hmm. is a shot of two or three, like, Ozians, like, restuffing the scarecrow. And they're wearing green short sleeve T-shirts that have white, that have Oz written on them in white letters. First T-shirt on film. Well, I, I'm totally remembering. I would, I wouldn't have even like thought of that as a T-shirt, but I guess it, yeah, it totally is. It is, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, Montgomery Clift donned a T-shirt in a place in the sun. Mm, yeah. Okay. But in 1951, mm-hmm. Marlon Brando appeared in a tight, dingy T-shirt in the film version of A Streetcar Named Desire, and mm-hmm. suddenly the T-shirt had sex appeal. So I'm going to be a little bit of a theater nerd here for just a second. <laughs> so Brando also wore 
that like also had it was wearing a t-shirt when he was in the stage version of a streetcar named desire and the costume design for that was done by a designer named lucinda ballard Elia kazan who directed the film and the stage version right when he was getting ready to do the stage version he arranged a meeting between tennessee williams and marlon brando so that williams could hear brando read for the part of stanley mm-hmm Brando was relatively unknown at this time, but after hearing him read, Williams thought it was the best read he'd ever heard. Here's, I believe this is from the Vogue article, quote, Kazan saw in Brando the characteristics of Stanley, the sexual magnetism, the brooding self-involvement, the little boy quality. He was both brute and infant. And apparently they had been rehearsing for a couple of weeks, but like Brando just he was having trouble finding Stanley as a character. Mm -hmm. And this is where designer Lucinda Ballard comes in. Mm -hmm. So she had this idea to dress Marlon, to dress Stanley in the clothing that she saw the con ed ditch diggers wearing while they were digging the ditches for fucking electricity um, in in Midtown. Yeah. And that was this uniform of jeans and a t-shirt. Right. Again, from the Vogue article, quote, their clothes were so dirty that they had stuck to their bodies. It was part of the undesigned outfit that Ballard chose that ultimately became part of the culture, the new symbol of American maleness, an Mm -hmm. urgently desired new beginning, a badge of cool, a symbol of identity, the defining fashion moment of the decade, and most importantly, fashion that was accessible to all, regardless of the economic reality in which people lived. And that's going to be a thing that continues to come up is how universal the t-shirt is in terms of access. Mm-hmm. So about three weeks into the rehearsal process, Ballard brings Brando in for a fitting. And again, he's like, I don't, I don't understand this character. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. But she had prepared for the fitting by dyeing several T-shirts red. I had no idea. They're red. And then washing them over and over again so that they shrunk. Then she would like, you know, she would like put in a little tear on the shoulder to suggest like maybe some violence between Stanley and Stella. And as far as the jeans, she got the tailor to cut and taper the jeans so that they like hugged the contours of Brando's body. So like, I mean, the sex appeal is like very oozing. Yes. It's all like everything is made for him to look like this man you know mm-hmm. i just i'm gonna jump in real quick and say like so i have a brando connection in my story too but mine is literally the opposite of yours interesting <laughs> so we'll, we'll get there we'll get there but. interesting okay upon seeing himself in the costume brando went nuts uh mm-hmm. he is supposed to have said quote this is it this is what i've always wanted like mm-hmm. apparently like they they said that like he had this like boy like joy at seeing himself and Mm -hmm. he was like jumping around and like dancing in the costume fitting and everything like he was just like i look fucking great i mean i feel like he became real because you think of movies like the wild one and on the waterfront like he's in a t-shirt in a lot of movies in that time period oh yeah like if you google search marlon brando t-shirt there's a lot that comes up yeah there's a lot that comes up so this outfit was the personification of the everyman as they wanted to be seen masculine brooding sensual and virile And Mm -hmm. again, widely available to everyone. James Dean also wore a t-shirt in Rebel Without a Cause. Right. Right now, I'm going to send you, I'm going to text you some pictures. Okay. So first, I'm going to send you Montgomery Clift in his t-shirt in A Place in the Sun. You can take a look at it. Yeah. Oh, he was, he was a 
good looking man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's him in that t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, James Dean in his t-shirt and Rebel Without a Cause. And, you know, they're fitting similarly. And I should also state that Clift and Dean both have like male bodies that were very like in vogue at the time, sort of like lithe, lean. Yeah, like kind of muscly, but like not like- Sinewy. Sinewy. That's a good word. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now here's Brando. Yeah. It's just like a fucking muscle shirt. Yeah. So- Because Brando's had been dyed and shrunk, his physique is like barely contained right. <laughs> in the shirt. Like it, the sleeves are like tight. They're like kind of high up in his armpits. So his biceps mm-hmm. are like on full display. Like right. there is absolutely something like raw and dangerous mm-hmm. about I mean, the it's... way that Brando looks in his t-shirt. Whereas I think Clift and Dean kind of look boyish in theirs yeah because like if you really look at like brando's physique versus I'm, I'm scrolling up versus cliff's physique they're not really that different no but they look so different because of the t-shirt like like brando really does look like a he almost looks like a bodybuilder in that shot where yeah like, yeah cliff just looks like like a guy like a dude you know yeah. just a guy yeah yeah that's interesting I mean, how how much that changes things. Yeah, I mean, Brando looks like a like a beefcake. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like that the armpit of that shirt is doing a lot of work. Like it's <laughs> it's it's doing a lot of work, and he's like holding this beer. I feel like you can like see the contours of his abs. Like yeah. it's a lot. It's. Now that you pointed it out, the the armpit of the shirt is reminding me of, have you seen the Instagram page, the secret buttholes Instagram <laughs> feed? No. This has kind of got a secret buttholes kind of thing happening. Interesting. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll check that out. Um, <laughs> okay. So the release of the movie sees the t-shirt transition from an undergarment to a piece that could be worn on its own outside of the workplace, like mm. farmers, mechanics, tradesmen, welders, all right. that stuff. They're wearing the t-shirt. But after this, everybody's like, oh, I want to look like fucking Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire. So then everybody starts wearing their t-shirts all over the place. Mm-hmm. That fit, which is close to the skin and revealing of the body, that makes the t-shirt sex appeal like quickly explode. And it mm-hmm. soon translates to female actors and singers wearing t-shirts too. This is mm. again before this, like men had been like, give me that union suit. And they appropriated that women's underwear. And now women are like, give me that fucking t-shirt. And I Mm -hmm. will fully say that I have stolen many a man's t-shirt in my day. Mm -hmm. In 1977, Jacqueline Bissett wore a wet see-through t-shirt in her movie, The Deep. And the the eroticism (laughs) of the t-shirt was cemented. Oh, I, uh, yeah, that was one of those like awakening as a child. Because she's like only wearing a t-shirt and like bikini bottoms. I remember very clearly. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to post the picture, but Mm -hmm. you pervs can go out there and take a look. Like you can see nipples and everything. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I'm a child of the 80s, but there is something like unbelievably erotic about a wet t-shirt. Like I don't know across all genders. Yeah, no, like, I I agree, and I, I that is hot. kind of that is kind of an you did see that a lot in the- a lot there were yeah. it was happening a lot. So yeah. younger fans, let us know in the comments if you also think that wet t shirts are hot, mm. or if you've ever seen a wet t shirt. <laughs> okay, and if you haven't, what are you doing? 
what do you do? Go get, go put on a t-shirt and pour a bunch of water on yourself right now. Yeah. And then look, look at how hot you are. Okay. <laughs> um, so the t-shirt goes from essentially underwear to sex symbol within a few decades. And yeah. the next progression is of course, Propaganda. Because t-shirts were essentially blank slates, they could carry messages of all kinds, political, advertorial, graphic, humorous. Silk screen printing made t-shirts endlessly customizable, and Mm -hmm. businesses soon realized that they could turn customers into walking billboards, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse and Coca-Cola were some of the first characters slash brands to appear on mass produced T-shirts. I don't know, like this little tidbit is fascinating to me, but the first people who were actually doing this, putting their logo on a T-shirt was back in the night in the early 1950s when several companies began decorating T-shirts with the names of different Florida resorts. Hmm. I would kill to get I bet those T-shirts were cool as shit the probably might be worth a lot of money so that happens in the 1960s that's when we get the ringer tea Mm -hmm. and that becomes a staple for rock and rollers Mm -hmm. and then we get hippies and they start tie-dyeing everything that they could get their hands on yeah including like their dogs and yes yes so after that the next logical step was to turn the t-shirt into wearable art or canvases for protest art Mm -hmm. psychedelic art poster designer warren dayton pioneered a ton of political protest and pop culture art printed on t-shirts this was stuff like the face of cesar chavez other political icons Uh, a company called monster company in mill valley california started printing grateful dead and cannabis culture shirts so so when we saw the rise of people like che guevara starting to pop up on t-shirts i was was gonna ask if that Mm -hmm. was part of that okay Mm -hmm. the yellow happy face popped Mm, up around this time the rolling stones tongue and lips logo got put on a t-shirt yeah and of course the iconic i heart new york t-shirt oh yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. in the mid 1980s don johnson brought back the plain white tee when he wore it with an armani suit on miami vice Mm -hmm. Uh, which is so funny because like there's something about that plain white tee that is like the epitome of cool because like going back to like the marlon brando and the james dean it was like that was so part of like the 50s greaser look. Yeah. But then, yeah, when you get to the 80s, it's like that Don Johnson with the like linen suit. And, right. Like, yeah. And I like it's interesting because I'm trying to think of in the 1980s, when else I saw someone wearing a white T-shirt. Like, you know, pe- like a guy mm-hmm. might throw on a white tee, like a white Hanes to go jogging, you know, in his like short shorts. Right. But in terms of like wearing it out, I it like the thing that pops out at me is Don Johnson in those stupid mm-hmm. like pastel colored well, Armani yeah. suits. I mean, the rest of us were just like walking. Bill- I mean, I'm still a walking billboard. You know, I'm like <laughs> basically like a walking like you know advertisement for death metal and horror movies. So 100. percent Yeah, 100. percent So this garment, which started you know basically as underwear, then it became subversive when it started to be worn on its own. Mm-hmm. It appealed across generations, right? Theoretically, the T-shirt flattened socioeconomic standing because anyone and everybody had access to T-shirts. Right. But we know that things can't go unspoiled by consumerism. And so while you can still buy a three-pack of white Fruit of the Loom T-shirts for under $10, the Mm -hmm. simple garment has been reinterpreted by designers from Yves Saint Laurent to Christian Dior to Ralph Lauren. And as a matter Mm -hmm. of fact, designers Giorgio Armani and Helmut Lang wear the damn thing as a uniform now. Uh, mm-hmm. Giorgio Armani, I'm pretty certain, is a black t-shirt man. I'm pretty sure he's always in black pants and a black yeah. t-shirt. 
When um, I would go to meeting, this is like my little humble brag, but when I would go to meetings in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, like the uniform for either the people I was meeting with or just about everyone else that like I would see in the meetings mm-hmm. was always like some sort of like Armani t-shirt or something. Uh-huh. That was the, it was like a very forced, uh, you know, casualness, but also like an ostentatious way of wealth. Yeah. Because you, know? you know, that wasn't a fruit of the loom team. Right. So in December, building off of that point, in December of 2022, Vogue released their picks for the best white t-shirts. The shirts range in price from $7, Hanes, to mm-hmm. $380. And that is a low embroidered cotton tee. It has a little like embroidered thing i think on the pocket um three hundred dollars three hundred and eighty the average price for the shirts on that list are seventy two dollars i mean if i'm paying three hundred dollars for a t-shirt it better be able to like do my taxes and right right exactly (laughs) exactly and this brings me to my last section i'm going to end with the most expensive t-shirts in the world Okay. Ninth, the first one on the list is the 1986 Andy Warhol Keith Herring shirt. This mm. shirt sold for $11,866. Wow. It is a white t-shirt emblazoned with a stylized portrait of New York artist Keith Herring designed mm-hmm. by Warhol. Because yeah. neither artist is alive today, all of their remaining work is highly priced by art right. collectors. It is unclear to me with this shirt if there are like a few of these shirts and they all go for this price or if this is like the last remaining one and this is the price that it was auctioned off for watch someone's like got one that they just totally forgot about it's like at the bottom of their drawer or something well keep listening (laughs) so 1967 grateful dead Mm, t-shirt $17,640 Jesus This is a bright yellow t-shirt featuring the band's name, and it has these two kind of like sun yin-yang things sort of like Mm -hmm. surrounding the band name. This shirt was only made for and given to the band members. Oh, so. It was never sold. This is, my understanding is like this particular shirt, it's like the one that is out there that is not in the bottom of somebody's dresser drawer. (laughs) It is in near pristine condition. Wow. And it sold at Sotheby's in October of 2021 for nearly $18,000. Yeah. I feel like you're going to get a kick out of this one. The Beatles Butcher Cover Album T-shirt. Butcher cover? Mm-hmm. Oh. $20,000. I, to- I totally mm-hmm. know this. Im- I know the image. I didn't know it was a t-shirt. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is an off-white. And when I say off-white, I mean it looks dingy. Like it looks <laughs> dirty. Dirty. Uh, it's an off-white t-shirt featuring a single-tone screen print of the Beatles' original Yesterday and Today LP cover art. Mm-hmm. The original cover art showed the band holding mangled baby dolls and large chunks of raw meat. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> this is hilarious to me. People were so uncomfortable with a bunch of plastic and raw meat that they were like, absolutely not. The cover was dubbed the butcher cover and mm-hmm. the cover art ended up being for the album ended up being redesigned to feature the band around an open steamer trunk. Mm-hmm. The butcher cover was pulled from shelves and any products showing the original cover art were also pulled and destroyed. Somehow someone 
held on to one of those original shirts. And mm. in 2011, it was auctioned on eBay for $20,000. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. just going back to like my uh, Paula's dead story, like that was the time period where the Beatles just started getting real weird. It's just so funny because I was like, first of all, on the t-shirt, because you can you can find, you can Google it and find images of the t-shirt. Mm. It's a single tone print. So it is virtually impossible to make out what right. they're holding. Right. Like you have to know what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I was like, okay. And I went and I looked again, I looked at that, like the, you know, there's a couple of images of the original artwork. And I was mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's baby dolls. I get people were just like, don't hurt. Like it's too close to a real baby. Yeah. And I'm well, like, I think this is it was... the least disturbing thing I've seen on a cover <laughs> right. of an album. I think what makes it so sort of disturbing is that they were still kind of in their like teen idol mod look. And so they're, it's, they're, it's just the incongruousness of the image. You're just and like, they're What's all happening? grinning like a bunch of goose. Yeah, so they're, they're all so like, happy. hey. <laughs> yeah. It is a great image. You guys should look it up. Yeah, 100%. I will put that. I will put the original. I'll either do the t-shirt or the original cover art in the images for this show. Cool. Okay. Supreme Donald Trump shirt. $20,000. This is a plain red t-shirt featuring a gray image of Donald Trump's face in a sort of like Banksy graffiti style. Mm. The shirt was released in 2003 and originally went for under $100. But once Trump mm-hmm. became president, yeah, it, people went crazy. It was also a limited edition. Like they didn't make a ton. Right, right. And so there's a finite number of them. Again, it was sold on an online auction for $23,000. Gross. Uh, I mean, you might as well just lit that money on fire. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, this is so utterly on brand. <laughs> the Banksy tagged tea. $31,545. This is wow. from a statement Banksy themselves made. Quote, an attempt to fulfill the trademark requirements to sell clothing with the artist's name written on. These tag tees are made out of charity shop shirts vandalized with stainer ink, spray paint, or oil stick. Everyone is different, will last a while, but might stain other stuff if you wash it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> this particular shirt, because again, like Banksy made a series of these. Mm-hmm. This particular shirt appears to be a short-sleeved blue and gray raglan Adidas tee featuring mm-hmm. the Adidas trifoil on it. And then where the word Adidas is Banksy tagged Banksy. I think, I think I've seen the image, but again, mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a t-shirt. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. And they're like Banksy, I think really like Banksy, I mean, did. He said he did. Mm-hmm. He, she, they said that like just popped into a bunch of thrift stores and was like, mm-hmm. you know, so there's like an Adidas one. I think there's like a Nike, there's like a Reebok mm-hmm. and just got logo t-shirts and then it was like Banksy on them. Yeah. The shirt does come with a certificate of authenticity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the 1985 Andy Warhol art t-shirt valued at $34,515. This is a white t-shirt featuring a red ball. Mm. It's like a sphere, but it's not a circle. It looks more spherical Mm -hmm. um, with the word art written on it in like Times New Roman. Hmm. Yeah. 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 This shirt is one of the last products created by Warhol and one of the few t-shirts approved by Warhol himself. Mm -hmm. The 1980s Beatles Revolution t-shirt. 
$50,000. Wow. Uh, this was a collaboration with Nike. It is a gray shirt that features the Beatles as actual Beatles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the word Nike is clearly visible on Ringo's drum kit, but apparently the band never agreed to allow Nike to use their name, likeness, or music to sell products. I was going to say, that doesn't seem very on brand to the Beatles. That's why, I, but I, I don't know. I mean, 1980, so it's not like this was new. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. like trademark and copyright and all that stuff was new. So it's mm-hmm. weird to me that Nike was like, let's put out a Beatles t-shirt and then like forgot to ask the Beatles. Yeah, that's the, that seems shady. It's weird. And maybe the, maybe they were like, oh, oh well, they're going to be Beatles. It's going to be the Beatles, but they won't actually be the Beatles. It'll just be like little bug right. Beatles they're that look like the Beatles. Technicality who, or something. Who knows? So because of that, because the, the Beatles were like, uh-uh, Nike pulled any remaining items related to the Beatles off the shelves. The few folks who managed to snag one of these tees before its mass removal had a piece of pop culture history on their hands. Mm-hmm. The shirt is still listed. And I looked it up. The shirt is still listed at $50,000 on eBay. Nobody's wow. bought it yet. Uh, the Hermes Noir crocodile shirt valued hmm. at $91,500. This is one of the few non-vintage shirts on this list. So okay. Hermes is a luxury French brand. They produce right. some of the most expensive handbags. If you've heard of a Birkin, that is Hermes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this shirt was released in 2013 and is entirely made of dyed black crocodile skin. Mm. Crocodile leather is rare and challenging to work with, mm. hence the outrageous price tag. I've seen the pictures of it. I don't know what would possess <laughs> you to wear a crocodile t-shirt. I'm just the look on your face at everything. I just, I'm trying to think of where you would wear a short sleeved t-shirt out of a material like leather. I, yeah. Like I, I like, I wouldn't wear it to dinner. I wouldn't want to wear it to like, you know, a club or anything, anywhere where I could like spill anything on it. But I, I guess if you're the type of person who would buy that, you're also the type of person who would wear it just so people would be like, oh, my God, you bought the 90. Is that the Hermes? Yeah. yeah. And then it's like, well, yes, but now please get away from me with your fucking fruit punch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the OK, I actually really like this one. UNICEF cargo flight anti-famine T-shirt valued at three hundred thousand dollars. Wow. This is a white T-shirt featuring a cartoon drawing of a green airplane dumping cargo boxes. Mm. Uh, UNICEF, which I think we all know UNICEF, right. uh, they provide aid to children around the globe and they raise funds by selling merchandise like T-shirts. They will mm-hmm. partner with artists to create images to be put on these T-shirts to raise funds. Mm-hmm. Most of them are pretty affordable. Their mosquito shirt, for example, used to raise funds for the relatively cheap mosquito nets only cost $19. Okay. But the cargo shirt was made to raise funds for transporting life-saving cargo, hence the airplane dumping the cargo boxes. I don't know how many of the cargo flight shirts were made, but they, you know, clearly you're transporting planes of cargo boxes to Africa. Mm -hmm. So of course it was going to be $300,000. A couple of other ones that were created uh, to fight famine and provide aid throughout Africa. Uh, it's in- include the measles vaccine, which just featured an image of a serene, a syringe, sorry, deworming tablets, which just, mm. and all of this are like cartoons stuff, like kind of cartoon style, it had a dead worm on it with like little X's <laughs> over the eyes. Um, <laughs> it just reminds me of the Van Morrison. You've got 
got ringworms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, high energy biscuits, a cookie with a bite taken out of it. Ready to eat therapeutic food, a peanut. Therapeutic mm. milk, milk carton. Basic water kit, a pail with water. Uh, a water pump, a water pump. Emergency right. tents, a tent. Transportation, a motorbike. And core, I'm sorry, corn soy blend, which was a semi carrying an enormous ear of corn. Um, mm. They are all very, very cute. Mm. Okay. Superlative luxury, the most expensive shirt in the world, $400,000. Wow. A black organic cotton tee featuring a printed geometric design. And like each point of that geometric design features either a sparkling white or a glittering black diamond. Wow. This shirt was released in 2012 by Superlative Luxury, and it was created using low emission technology Mm. and features nearly 10 carats of diamonds. Here's the thing, because I started looking at this and I was like, this is fishy as shit. The Mm -hmm. only image that you can find is a very, is it like, a pixelated it's a low res that's what i should say it's mm. a low res image there is there are no close ups of the diamonds you can't even really see the diamonds on the image of the t-shirt mm. and the website superlative luxury can no longer be found online yeah that mm, that that sounds like its own rabbit hole yes I couldn't, it's, this is like the most mysterious t-shirt on the internet. (laughs) I couldn't even, I couldn't find one single picture of an actual human wearing the shirt, not even Mm. a model. I was like, yeah. And it was like, like it was Nigerian Prince made 100%. And I want to say that like every, cause a bunch of articles linked to it. But like I said, I was like, they're all using the same picture. And like, I want to see what the, like, I want to see what these fucking diamonds look like. And all of them linked to, and it was like superlative luxury, the most expensive te- most expensive shirt in the world.com. And I was like, this is fucking fishy as hell. This is a total This sounds scam. fishy as hell. Yeah. Okay. And then in 2018, clothing brand Diesel partnered with real estate group Bell Invest to create the first residential diesel building in Miami. Mm -hmm. With an unconventional campaign called the Condo T-Shirts, the most expensive T-Shirts ever, Diesel created 143 unique tees, each one featuring the floor plan of one of the residences at the Diesel Winwood Winwood condo development, ranging in price from $370,000 to $5.5. Five million. The T-shirt wow. comes with a free condo. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's clever. <laughs> yeah. So you're buying the condo you're and buying the, the condo. You're buying the condo and getting the free T-shirt. Right. Um, I looked at it because you can go. You can do virtual tours of the apartments. The shirts, you know, are like little blueprints, floor plans right. of the condos. Um. I feel like they look pretty much exactly like what you would expect a condo done right. by a fashion line like Diesel to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, they're slightly industrial, lots sure. of windows, lots of gray, you know, right. <laughs> like super modern. Yeah. Like. White walls, like upscale, minimal design. Um, right. They're also small. Like when you do the tours, like you yeah. go into like the secondary bedroom and it's like the bed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that's it. So they're right. only a little, you know. Um not so much my thing. Yeah. So that is the history of the t-shirt and some of the most expensive t-shirts in the world. 
Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it it is funny how, like, I mean, T-shirts really are just like, they've become just like advertisements. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. um, And it's also, it's, I mean, this is definitely like why I wear my T-shirts is it's just like, it's a quick way of signaling, like, this is who I am. This is the type of person I am. Like, get on board or not, you know? Yeah. Like, I was wearing, uh, I was just up in Denver and like went to buy new shoes and i was wearing my john prine t-shirt and the clerk at the place was like hey i like your t-shirt and then we have this like little bonding thing you know yep. and it's just like oh you're my people kind of thing yeah and like so it's just like they end up yeah they are like billboards but they're also like kind of like create like a nice shorthand if you're like into a thing you find other people who are into the thing that you're into you know? yeah yeah it was really funny because i was doing some last minute tweaks to the story today before we hopped on here and i can't remember i do not remember how I fell down this rabbit hole. But for our listeners out there, Scotty will frequently send me and my brother on our text thread pictures of weird shirts that (laughs) Facebook (laughs) advertises to him. Oh, my God. Uh, The latest of which was, I like to suck dick with my butthole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I'm just trying to figure out the cross section of, because it was also kind of in like weird death metal font. Yeah. And I think it even had like an inverted pentagram on it. And I'm trying to figure out the cross section of people that are like, ooh, add to cart. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there I, is like, there's an er, there's a younger version of myself that did go out of my way to wear offensive t-shirts. And like, I, me and my friend, uh, I'm not going to name him. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Disneyland with like a big group of us uh, when we were in college. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we were like, we're going to wear, because we're like, 21 year old assholes who are into metal uh-huh. and so we're like we're gonna wear our like fucking offensive like cuss word shirts so like i wore a blue velvet shirt that had dennis hopper with the gas mask and it says don't you fucking look at me and then he wore a shirt for the band cradle of filth which was just like an enormously breasted woman covered in blood like holding her boobs under the logo like cradle of filth and his girlfriend who was super into disney was like uh-huh. i need you to go get a picture with mickey mouse so he goes to get the picture with mickey mouse and they're like we're gonna hang these like on the wall here like (laughs) like we can't so literally there's a picture of him with like his shirt half rolled up and mickey's like big paw like on his chest so he's like (laughs) getting felt up by mickey (laughs) but like but i look back on that and i'm like that was kind of like a dick move to like go to disneyland and wear shirt but you know what what can i say we were like we were like 20 and into satan or whatever you know yeah (laughs) and It's just, it's real weird. Um, But I saw one today. I'm going to send it to you later. I'm not going to say everything that was on this shirt. It was (laughs) gross. And like, here's Mm -hmm. the thing, not to kink shame anybody, but I'm like, if you are wearing a shirt advertising this, why do you, why do you need to advertise this particular? (laughs) Well, the thing is, it's not actually about, it's about the like being in your face thing. Like it's a, it's, it's about offending people. Right. Here's If you're wearing, if you're wearing it on a t-shirt. Right. Here's the thing. And I, I I understand that I might be in the minority of this. Mm -hmm. I see somebody wearing that shirt and I don't go, I'm offended by that. I go, why do you need so much attention? Oh yeah. No, that's, I mean, like when I look back on us wearing the metal shirts at Disneyland, it's like, there's just fucking families there trying to enjoy their day. But like we had to make it about ourselves, you know? Like, we had to make it about the two fucking creepos who were, like, you know, lurking by the fucking drink stand. Yeah, you know, and it's just, like, nobody, like, like, 
you'll understand when I send you this t-shirt because this yeah. goes beyond like a metal t-shirt. This even oh, yeah. goes beyond having like a cuss word on it. Right. This is something that I am like, if I saw somebody wearing this, I'd be like, do you like, do you need help? Do you mm-hmm. need well, it is. It's just a cry for attention. And I mean, I still wear like a lot of metal shirts and punk rock shirts and obviously yeah. like horror movie shirts. But yeah. I kind of go out of my way now when I'm buying stuff to like not look for the thing that's like shock value, you know, mm-hmm. because it's like as I'm a 45 year old man, like I'm like, that's not what's interesting to me anymore. When I was right. younger, it was, but like, right. Not so much now. Yeah. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm definitely curious to see this shirt that you're talking about. I and I, I don't. God, I need to see if it's because it was on my it was on my other computer. So I'm gonna have to see if I can like navigate my way back to it. But I was like, what the fuck is wrong with y'all? Like, what is, <laughs> what is this? Yeah, it was real. Yeah. It was real weird. I was like, mm, mm, mm. it was like <laughs> it was like the pervy BDSM version of like <laughs> like uh. Those like weird church, like kind of church mom shirts mm-hmm. where it's like pancakes on Saturday, church on Sunday, like grinding on Monday. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of shit where you're like, yeah, I don't care, you know, yeah. <laughs> but it was like a weird pervy BDSM version I'm, of that. I'm real. I'm, no, I'm real curious. It was so weird. And it was in like a woman's tee. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like in a fitted woman's tee. <laughs> whatever okay anyway. on to the next <laughs> all right well so full disclosure i did change my story last minute um <laughs> but uh i do i do have i guess i guess you could call this a cold open okay um so it's not something i've talked about a lot on the podcast but i think i've mentioned it that my favorite movie of all time is apocalypse now mm-hmm. and don't worry i'm not gonna like go into the history of apocalypse now <laughs> okay uh but like one of the things i love about apocalypse now uh, that i love about that movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that it's just not a movie that should exist or that should work. Because if you look at like the shit show of its production, I mean, they're in the middle of the jungle. You had a director who's totally in over his head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the set is being destroyed by hurricanes. And then, of course, you know, they're writing the script as they go. They didn't even have like a finished script. And they're just bleeding money into this thing. And the shoot is going way over time, way over budget. And then you get crazy Marlon Brando showing up on set, like, like has not read the script, is just coming up with like random shit. You know, they had to lock themselves in a room for like a week to rewrite all of his scenes because he hadn't even read anything <sighs> and just pretty much like ad libbed his way through <laughs> like the entire climax of the film. Like, yeah. it's just, it's not a movie that should work. Right. But at least from my perspective, all of that chaos just gelled into something that to me is just like a masterpiece this big messy fever dream movie that's just brilliant well there's another movie (laughs) that has almost the exact same set of circumstances okay shot in the middle of the jungle set destroyed by a hurricane director totally in over his head uh multiple cast turnovers and then crazy Marlon brando showing up hasn't learned the script is totally like ad-libbing his way through the entire movie. And this is not a movie that, let's just say this movie did not become a masterpiece. Okay. So this week I'm telling the story of the absolute shit sandwich that was the production of 1996's The Island of Dr. Morrow. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. (laughs) So my sources this week, Wikipedia, 
of course. Mm-hmm. Most my my primary source is a documentary called Lost Souls: The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. It's directed by someone named David Gregory. Also, articles from Collider.com, SlashFilm.com, Inverse.com, and Yahoo.com. And I'm like I said, I completely changed my story last minute. My notes are pretty all over the place. Uh, a lot of this I'm just gonna like do from memory from the okay. documentary. But I feel like that's in the spirit of the shit show that was this movie. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So let's just like see how this goes. Let's see how it goes. All right. So, well, first, uh, we're going to talk about The Island of Dr. Moreau. You should probably talk a little bit about the book. Okay. Um, So, The Island of Dr. Moreau was written, it's a science fiction novel published in 1896, written by H.G. Wells. 1896? 1896. Yeah. Really? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Didn't mean to. No, that's cool. It was published two years before his classic, The War of the Worlds, which came out in 1898. Okay. Um, Now, even at the time, people were looking at The Island of Dr. Moreau and being like, the science in this thing's a little, a little wonky. Um. So anyway, <laughs> if you're not familiar with this story, I'm not going to go through the whole plot, but it's basically, it's narrated by a character named Edward Prendick. Mm-hmm. He's a shipwrecked man. He's rescued by a boat that's passing through. This is in the South Pacific. He's woken up on a boat by a man named Montgomery. Montgomery is there with a quote, bestial manservant named mm-hmm. Maling. And Montgomery and Maling are transporting a bunch of animals to some mysterious island for unknown purposes. Okay. Including, like, uh, a cougar. Okay. Um, once they get to the island, basically what we find out is that Montgomery is the assistant to the infamous Dr. Moreau, a scientist who is creating human-like hybrid beings from animals. Um, Now, in the book, he's a vivisectionist. And so vivisection is basically it's surgery conducted for experimental purposes on a living organism, Mm -hmm. typically animals with a central nervous system to view the living internal structure. So the idea is you operate on a it's like dissection, but the subject Mm -hmm. is alive. Mm -hmm. So you can see the heart beating. You can see. And it sounds real cruel because it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reason they were doing it is they sort of realized doctors at the time were like, a lot of what we do is basically witchcraft. So maybe we need to like actually start learning how all these components of the body work. Mm-hmm. So this was in the service of trying to learn more about yeah. anatomy and how anatomy functions. But of course, they're doing it through this like awful, awful procedure, which was controversial at the time. So H.G. Wells is getting into like he's touching on the themes of the controversy around vivisection. Okay. And it's themes of like cruelty to animals, about like human identity and just questions of identity what makes us human yeah and then of course evolution how far removed are we from our animal forebears Mm -hmm. and at this time period in the 19th century people were like real wrapped up in like concerns about the human race degenerating quote unquote now this sounds yeah a proper (laughs) raised eyebrow there um, if this sounds racist, it's because it is. Um, yeah. A lot of this was based in racial fears. A lot of this was the stuff that H.P. Lovecraft was all worked up about. A lot of this was like phrenology and eugenics and all this stuff. And this is like what H.G. Wells was sort of like co- trying to comment on. So, okay. I just have to say sidebar, and I'm sure I am not mm-hmm. the – I'm absolutely positive I'm not – this is not a brand new idea. The thing that cracks me up about this is that it's always – 
white folks who are like, we're really concerned Mm -hmm. with it. And I'm like, then stop fucking invading. You could just stay on your little island with your fucking cliffs and your fucking, you know, potatoes and just not fucking go anywhere. (laughs) You know what I mean? But instead you were like, well, we need to go to all these places. And then you're like, oh, there's like black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you could have just left them alone. Yeah. No, um, the cognitive dissonance in 100%. hypocrisy is yes. okay. I just had to. They just had to full state display. it. Display. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I'm no. Well stated. I mean, I <laughs> certainly don't disagree. <laughs> and I, I believe that, like, so H.G. Wells, he was like very much. He was known a known progressive of the era. Mm-hmm. I believe he was a socialist. A socialist. Mm. I believe he was sort of commenting. Like, there's a He's... lot of the island of Doctor Moreau that's actually kind of a commentary on colonialism. Right. Like, yeah you know uh going in and basically behaving as if we're god with the quote lesser beings right so i think he knew like he would have agreed with what you just said i believe awesome so he we did don't just, we don't need to cancel hg wells not for this over this I mean, I have, i'm not an expert on hg wells so if there's like you know if he was oh also like you know sacrificing children to stay young or something i don't know about that so don't at me um <laughs> But like raging like <laughs> anti-Semite. Yeah. Well, I mean, frankly, everyone at this time was a raging anti-Semite, so I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But he did describe the book at the time as, quote, an exercise in youthful blasphemy. I have read the book. It's been a long time. Don't remember it all that well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do remember it's like it's kind of a cracking good read from what I remember. Interesting. Um, Are you, again, sidebar, sorry to interrupt. Uh, you know, the author of Mexican Gothic mm-hmm. wrote a book. Daughter of Dr. Moreau. That's yes. what prompted this. I just read it at the beginning of the year. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. Uh, we should like explain for the audience. Sylvia um, Garcia Moreno. Is that her name? Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Okay. Okay. My apologies. Um, and uh, I mean, I think I'm right. I think. Uh, fact okay. Check me. I'll fact check you <laughs> as. <laughs> yeah. She wrote a book that we both loved that we read last year called Mexican Gothic. Mm-hmm. And then her, her most recent book that came out either at the end of last year or early this year is The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, which is like her take on this story. And it's very good. I read okay. it. I don't think I like it as much as Mexican Gothic, but it's not that it's like a lesser book. I think it's just Mexican Gothic was like more my thing. But So it is Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Okay. I was pretty sure about that. (laughs) So that's uh, the novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau. It has been adapted several times for film. First adapted in in a French silent film and then a German silent film. The most famous adaptation is probably The Island of the Lost Souls from 1932. Okay. This is a Paramount Pictures film. It was sort of put out at the time where they were all trying to compete with like universal horror, universal monsters. Right. Um, So it starred Charles Lawton, Bella Lugosi, Bella Lugosi. Lugosi is the, quote, sayer of the law, which is one of the beast Mm. characters. Basically, the character of the sayer of the law is someone who's, like, there to, like, explain to the other animals how to be more human. And, like, this is the law. Like, only walk on two legs, not on four. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, That might be Animal Farm. But it's the same idea. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was like, weird. Okay. Mm. (laughs) But but it's basically, like, and it's, like, no killing. And you know, things like that. So that was um Bella Lugosi's character. And then they added the character of quote Panther Woman, who is credited in the movie only as Panther Woman. What the fuck? <laughs> like the actual actress's name is Kathleen Burke, but in okay. the eyes of audiences of 1932, she was 
Panther, Panther woman. woman. Okay. And this, what's interesting is that this is not really a character from the novel. There is part of the plot in the novel is that he's got the cougar that was on the boat um, and he's trying to turn it into a woman, but I think he never quite gets that far. Okay. Um, But the Panther woman has become like consistently the love interest character in basically every adaptation that has ever been done. Interesting. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it does pop up in Daughter of Dr. Moreau. Um, (laughs) no spoilers yeah but it Um, does in 1959 there was a movie called terror is a man this was a filipino film Mm. um it was later released in the u.s as blood creature (laughs) yeah the twilight people was a 1972 filipino american film directed by eddie romero from reading about it it actually sounds like this one might be kind of a good movie Uh, full disclosure i've not seen the filipino films i'm gonna have to track them down and then probably the first adaptation of the book that i ever saw was the island of dr moreau which is a 1977 american international pictures film that starred burt lancaster michael york nigel davenport and barbara carrera Mm. um and then of course and i think there have been a few since but of course most infamously we have the version from 1996 okay so let's talk about a director richard stanley okay so richard stanley is a south african filmmaker he's born in 1966 so at the time he was real young he was like in his late 30 yeah i think he was well, if the movie came out in 96 yeah he would have been when he was making late. he was like 28 29 when they were wow making this is gonna come up again in a minute uh but he is actually the great great grandson of a british explorer named henry morton stanley who's believed by many to be the basis of the kurtz character in joseph conrad's heart of darkness now this is interesting for a couple reasons one is apparently hg wells and joseph conrad were like buds but then joseph conrad put out heart of darkness and h2 wells like cut off all ties with him because he was convinced the heart of darkness was a ripoff of the island of dr morrell whoa um, yeah so weird uh richard stanley is the great great grandson of who joseph conrad claimed was the model for the kurtz character even though hgo wells was like no moreau my Dr. Moreau is the model for this character. Weird. Okay. There's a lot of weird crossover between the island of Dr. Moreau and Apocalypse Now, and I'll get into it as we go. So Stanley, he started making films as a teenager after joining something called the Young Filmmakers Workshop. I was not really able to figure out what that was. Mm. But when he was working as part of this workshop, his first film was a 10-minute Super 8 film called Rite of Passage, which, um, according to Wikipedia, draws comparisons between modern and primitive man, which obviously is something he kind of returns to in Mm -hmm. The Island of Dr. Moreau. That film went on to win the Student Film Trophy Award in 1984 from the Institute of Amateur cinematographers um he went on to make a more ambitious 45 minute short film uh, also in super eight called incidents in an expanding universe um it was a sci-fi film it was set in a future dystopia and it had some cyberpunk elements that he would sort of return to in his first like feature film okay he made several more short films one would later would be the basis for his later film dust devil and then he gained notice directing music videos primarily for like goth and industrial bands in england like fields of the nephilim and populate itself he specifically says that he met the guys from fields of the nephilim before they had a a record contract and they wanted to do a video to help them get signed Mm. and they were like uh richard come do this video for us and it kind of like put both of them on the map what's interesting about fields of the nephilim is that they're a goth band from england but they had like a kind of a a cowboy like a dark cowboy aesthetic like we're like a big black cowboy hat and black trench coats (laughs) 
Okay. This is an image that Richard Stanley himself adopts. Like if you see pictures of him, he's got long hair and he's always wearing a big black brimmed hat and often like black trench coat. And then the movie Dust Devil, like I think it's been a long time since I've seen Dust Devil, but the killer, I believe in that, is also wearing that kind of getup. Mm. Richard Stanley himself is like a real character and we'll we'll get into it as we get into the story, but he's okay. he's definitely got an aesthetic. Okay. <laughs> so he also traveled to by himself to Afghanistan. This is at the height of the Afghan-Soviet War, so in kind of the mid to late 80s. And he made a 30-minute documentary called Voice of the Moon, which was just about, like, Afghan people trying to live their Mm. lives while this war is going on. His experience was later the basis of a book by Sebastian Younger called Addicted to Danger. And then his first feature film was... The 1990s sci-fi horror movie Hardware, which starred Dylan McDermott. It's a British film, but it starred Dylan McDermott. And it has cameos from like Iggy Pop and Lemmy and people like that. Okay. It's very, I've seen it. It's very like punk rock, cyberpunky horror okay. movie. Um, okay. Pretty good movie. It gets compared to Terminator a lot, but it's a lot like weirder. It's a lot goofier. I mean, when I say goofy, I mean more just like off kilter than Terminator. Okay. This is what he had to say about hardware. He says it's extremely detailed and a lot more dystopian than the Terminator, which it's often compared to. I had worked on developing the hardware world for years and years since I was a teen. I was originally inspired by the book Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison. After I made a caveman Super 8 film, I thought, what's next but to do something set in the far future? It was set in a far future city on Christmas Eve in the apartment of a scrap metal sculptress and her drunken one-handed boyfriend. Later, when I was living in London and working <laughs> music videos, the hardware world evolved to become the multi-apocalypse world and eventually my first film. So he's talking about this short film. I believe it's the um, the, the incidents in an expanding universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking about, like, I think that was like the early version of it. Okay. Hardware. And then he followed that up with Dust Devil, which, like I said, was based on an earlier short film of his. It's a supernatural horror slash serial killer movie set in Namibia, and I believe filmed in Namibia. Oh, wow. Um, It was financed by British investors along with some gap financing by Miramax. It's also, both of these have become pretty big cult films. Okay. Dust Devil's really weird. Like, it's a real, it's like a horror movie, but it's like really kind of avant-garde and arty. Uh-huh. I remember not liking it, but I also remember that I was pretty young when I saw it, and I feel like I might like it better now. I think okay. at the time I was just like, I don't, what the hell is going on? I don't get like, it. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> so, I don't get it. <laughs> I was so confused. <laughs> that was um, me after fucking Black Swan. I was like, I don't. <laughs> what's, what's happening? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh God. If if Black Black Swan did that to you, do not see mother exclamation point. Okay. That movie is just like a I I could (laughs) tell just by like I could tell just by there are movies that I'm like just by the look of it, I can tell that it's not gonna be my movie. Not your thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the island of Dr. Moreau. Let's get to it. Richard Stanley had been like obsessed with the book since he was a little kid. Apparently his dad like had a copy of it on a shelf and had like a Mm -hmm. red binding Mm -hmm. and he would like page through it and it was illustrated. So you'd see all these pictures of like beast people. Oh, but his parents were like, you can't read it. It's too scary. So, I mean, he was like me. That's just like moth to a flame, you know? Right. Were there, were there ever any books that like your parents or anybody were like, not yet? Um, my mom did that to me with one book. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think the closest I came to that is when I decided I wanted to read Stephen King. It was Pet Cemetery. 
Mm. I would have been like 12 or 13. And my uh-huh. mom was kind of like, are you sure? Like that might be a little much for you. And I was mm-hmm. like, but it's got a cat on the cover. And then I read it and was like, nah. yeah. Right. But I wasn't like forbidden to read. I don't remember being forbidden to read it. Mm-hmm. My mom had, my my mom has always been like a voracious reader. And so she had a lot of the, I, I think they were Reader's Digest books. Like they were, they were the mm. books that looked like, you know, old timey kind of like leather bound. Right, right. All that right. stuff that you would like get sent. And I was looking for something to read. I don't remember how old I was, but I know that I picked up a book and she was like, what are you picking up? And I told her and she was like, not yet. And it was the yeah. postman always rings twice. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she wasn't like, if you're young, no. I could see. Yeah. She wasn't like, no. She just was like, not yet. Yeah. You're not, and, you're not ready for it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, fair. Yeah. I don't think my parents ever, I mean, if they had tried to ban something, I'm sure I would have tried to read it anyway. Cause that's the way I definitely had teachers who were like that. But I don't think, yeah, I don't think so. And I think, I think that like my mom let me read everything. Mm -hmm. So when she was like, not yet, I, for whatever reason was like, oh, okay. Like then this must be. Yeah, Yeah. I trusted it. Now I will say this is, we're off topic, but I will say I, and I was never like banned to read anything. I was, I'm the only person I know who was grounded and had my books taken away. (laughs) In the eighth grade, my parents had to take all my horror books away because it's just, but it wasn't because of content, it was because I wasn't doing my homework. Right. And they were like, enough. Yeah. Well, I was not doing my homework and then lying to them and being like, oh, yeah, totally got my homework. Totally got it done. I don't think I had my books taken away, but I frequently was told, turn off the light and go to bed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, enough. (laughs) Stop. Yeah. No, mine were like, they were put in a box, put up in the attic. Yep. (laughs) But anyway, so Richard Stanley, he, he had been obsessed with this book for a long time and he had seen the other movie particularly the island of lost souls and he was like and hg wells apparently was alive at the time the island of lost souls came out oh interesting. he was like an old man but and he was very disappointed in the film and and in the documentary richard stanley's like i can see why it's like very much like a watered down version of right so he was (laughs) like i want to do like a real adaptation so he starts writing the script Okay. To Island of Dr. Moreau, but here's the problem. It's not in public domain. Oh. <laughs> and the H.D. Wells estate is still, like, out there. And so he's like, well, I can't do this as, like, one of my little, like, British indie films that I Right. Doing. I'm going to need, like, a Hollywood company. And at this time, after, I think hardware was a big enough hit that, like, there was some interest in him. Mm-hmm. So he was able to get it ultimately over to Fine Line, or to New Line. Um, now a lot of people today would think of new line as the company that did the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films. Mm -hmm. But at the time new line was this like trash movie company. Like they were literally called quote the house that Freddie built. Cause they were, they were the company like the nightmare on Elm street movies were the company or were the films that put them on the map. Okay. So they were doing a lot of that kind of thing. A lot of like low budget. They were sort of a competitor to Miramax, but like Miramax was, even then trying to be like pretty art house at the mm-hmm. time new line was like no we're, we're just trying to like cash in on like get some shit out direct to video or like get franchises like nightmare on elm street or teenage mutant ninja turtles okay things like that they did later create their art house division called fine line uh which was a subsidiary of new line but at the time they were yeah they were like uh they were like an indie sort of not quite trauma <laughs> okay. um, like toxic avenger they weren't quite at that level but like you know, still like pretty looked down upon. Yeah. Probably the closest comparison today would be something like Blumhouse, where it's like 
you know, Blumhouse puts out really successful horror movies, but they're like generally critically not very mm-hmm. highly thought of, but they're like just pulling in the the money with these movies. And I would say like New Line was kind of like that at the time. Okay. Um okay, sorry, I had to look up their logo. And now that I've seen it, I know exactly who we're talking yeah. about. Got yeah, it. Yeah. And so New Line, there's in particular an exec at New Line uh, named Mike DeLuca, who he was kind of like the guru at New Line of like picking projects. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not the studio chief. The studio chief is a guy named Bob Shea. And Mike DeLuca, like he read Richard Stanley's script. He was like, I really like this script. You know, we need to, and now we're going to like wrangle for the rights. Bob Shea, like in the documentary, is like, I wasn't real excited about this, but I mean, you know, let Mike kind of do his thing. Right. So they start trying to put this movie together. And of course, Richard Stanley, he wrote the script and he wants to direct it. And he had written uh, roles for particular characters or for particular actors he knew. So, like, he really wanted the German actor Jürgen Prochnow to play Dr. Moreau. And if if you ever see a picture of Jürgen Prochnow, you would know who he is. He's very hatchet-faced, like, craggy-looking German man. How do you spell Jürgen? J-U-R-G-E-N and then Prochnow. Okay. P-R-O-C-H. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just like he's got a very severe, you know, he's got like a very craggy kind of face. Mm-hmm. Um, he had also uh, like apparently just randomly ran into James Woods in a restaurant or like a diner and was like, I love your work, man. Here's my script. And James Woods was like, cool. And took it home and read it and was like, I love this. I want to be in it. So he was cast as the Montgomery character. Okay. And then Bruce Willis, who was looking to do like he wanted to get out of his diehard guy what? persona. Okay. Was cast as the character Douglas, which was the movie's version of this um, Edward Prendick character, who's kind of the narrator. Okay. Okay. So, pretty great cast. Jurgen Prochnow, Bruce Willis, James Woods. Mm hmm. Except they never actually signed Jurgen Prochnow. Mike DeLuca was like, you know who, who I want to get? It's Marlon Brando. <sighs> so, he reached out and Marlon, and the word was Marlon Brando loved the script. That is a suspicious statement which will become clear later. Okay. But Marlon Brando signed on to play Dr. Moreau. Bob Shea, apparently, who is the New Line chief, was like, ooh, this is a bad idea. Because they had just worked with Marlon Brando on a movie called Don Juan DeMarco. Oh, yeah. I saw that actually It's a good movie, but apparently Brando was just like a terror, as he was in often, (laughs) particularly Mm -hmm. at this stage of his career. Mm -hmm. Um. Brando famously had a lot of contempt for acting and I think a lot of contempt for himself. Mm -hmm. And so there was just a real, as he got older and more successful, there was a real self-sabotagingness to like the choices he made. Yeah. And this is like late, this is late in the Brando era. (laughs) Yeah. In the nineties. So Bob Shea was like, Ooh, it was a bad idea, but they went with it. Brando, you know, Brando gives it like a sense of cachet. Well, this pushed the movie from being what was supposed to be like an eight to $10 million movie into like the budget's going up. And now they're like, well, the problem is, you know, Brando gives us some cred, but he doesn't put butts in seats. So we need someone who puts butts in seats. Good. We got Bruce Willis. But then Bruce Willis and Demi Moore got divorced and Bruce Willis was like, I can't go for legal reasons. I can't go out of the country for, I think there must've been custody stuff going on. There probably was. Yeah. So he dropped out. And then, so they're like, fuck, like we got uh, Brando who comes with a huge price tag, but is not like a box office draw. Uh-huh. Who can we get? Who can we get? I know, you know, who's really huge right now. Val Kilmer. 
coming right off of what was a Batman Forever. Is that his Batman? Let me (laughs) check. One of the Batmans, like one of the lesser Batmans. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Definitely one of the one of the low tier low tier Batmans. As we discussed on our last episode together, Michael Keaton's the best Batman. BT Dubs, have you seen the trailer for the Flash movie? No, is that out? Mm-hmm. I'll send they're it actually to you. Rele- they're actually releasing that? Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So uh, so they're like, yeah, let's get Val Kilmer. He's super hot right now. He wow. was He was super hot. I'm sure, I don't know if like the Youngs remember the era where Val Kilmer was famously like Oof. supposed to be the worst actor to work with in Hollywood and mm. like a total crazy person and mean and that reputation almost entirely comes from the island of dr morale really yeah um like if you read stories about him before you don't i think you hear oh he was he was kind of hard to work with you know or like later particularly later in his career people are like oh we loved working with val he was great but mm-hmm. at this period i think i mean i you just gotta look at it and be like it all went to his head like, that's really the only explanation that really makes sense, because this is right after Batman Forever, which was his yeah. big breakout. And you're right, um, it is Batman Forever. So they're like, we need, so we're going to get Val Kilmer to play the Edward Prindick slash Douglas character. Well, Val Kilmer comes on board and is like, yeah, I want to work that much. So I'll only, like, you need to cut 40 days out of, or 40% of my shooting days out of the schedule. This is like the first thing he demands and they're like well we can't like you're the lead like we can't do that so but here's what we can do we can move you over to the montgomery role okay which means bye-bye james woods so james woods off the project marlon brando meanwhile is like signed on but it's like who's this fucking kid directing you know i don't want to work with this fucking nobody so richard stanley hears through the grapevine like well we're gonna keep your script but you're gone because marlon can help us get roman polanski who's like hiding in a chateau in france yes because he's a fucking Um, pervert right but they're like we're not shooting in the u.s so he's not gonna get arrested i guess Mm. so according to richard stanley he was like, you hear different versions of this story on the, like, you'll read, if you Google this, it'll be like, Richard Stanley consulted a warlock to help get Marlon Brando cast. <laughs> That's actually not what happened. What happened was Marlon Brando was cast, tried to get him fired, and so he consulted a warlock to help convince Marlon Brando to keep him off Okay, so he did... You did consult a a warlock. He was friends with a guy named Edward Featherstone who claimed to be a warlock who was back in uh, the UK. Basically, Richard Stanley was like, look, I wrote this script. You need to give me just one meeting with Marlon Brando. And apparently Marlon Brando was like not having it and was like planning to just like rake him over the coals and basically be like, no, we don't want you. You're gone. So meanwhile, while like simultaneous to his meeting with Marlon Brando, Edward Featherstone is back in London doing witchy shit. I don't know what witchy warlock shit he's doing okay and i'm being sarcastic because i don't i'm i'm like i'm sorry if you're wicca i'm not making fun of your <laughs> but like this edward featherstone i'm suspicious as to what this dude's deal was um i mean but so he, well continue continue i'll <laughs> well, i'm gonna, I'm mean, gonna hold maybe, that comment yeah maybe yeah so you know, maybe tutu on on all this warlock <laughs> right. naysaying. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so he's doing his like warlock shit back in London, 
and Richard Stanley shows up to Marlon Brando's house and it's like up in Beverly Hills and it's like all hidden by like a big bamboo forest apparently sure then you go in and he's got trained Dobermans that are trained to attack anything like if, if Marlon Brando pointed it with a laser pointer the dogs will attack and he kept showing this off like watch this and was like doing that um so that's intimidating but like yeah. they show up and they get along like fucking peanut butter and jelly like for one thing richard stanley's like by the way my great great grandfather was henry morton stanley whatever the guy's name is mm-hmm. who was the basis for kurtz who you played in apocalypse now and at that point marlon brando was like we're friends we're buds and then so he actually left the meeting now with marlon brando insisting that richard stanley be kept on to direct so maybe my day saying, look, uh, this was came too soon. <laughs> this was the because, co- you know, with like with witchery, right? Something always has to cut like the balance. The scales have to be balanced. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So maybe Warlock was doing his business and it was like, yes, yes, yes. Let's get Marlon Brando on the project and on board with the student, blah, 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 blah. So fantastic. That happens. And then hold that thought because that actually this- comes up. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that's happening. Nobody mm -hmm. can see me in the podcast because you're listening to this. Another weird thing that happened in this meeting. So Stanley was sent to the meeting with a new line exec, a woman named Ruth Vitale, Mm -hmm. who I don't believe was team Richard Stanley. And I think was there to be like, to, I don't know, to sort of moderate the situation or whatever. Mm -hmm. Apparently they get there and it's just like hot. And so Marlon Brown was like, well, let me turn on the air conditioner. And she says, oh, if you turn up the air conditioner too high, I'll fall asleep. And he was like, cool. And he turns up the air conditioner and she falls asleep. So she sleeps through the meeting while Richard Stanley and Marlon Brando are just like bonding and becoming like buddies. So that, again. Also, what's up with this narcoleptic woman who's like, don't get me too cold or all. Yeah. I wanted more explanation about that. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, So. Now we've got Marlon Brando on board. Marlon Brando's on board with Richard Stanley directing. Mm -hmm. We've got, I think maybe they hadn't gotten Val Kilmer yet, but that was kind of next. And then they ended up, because after they cast Val Kilmer, they they and they moved him over to this Montgomery role, which is more of a supporting character. They still needed someone to play this Douglas character, you know, who's the Edward Prendick character. Right. And so they're like, who's kind of hot at the time? They're like, you know who we can get and who's probably sort of cheap is rob mora who at the time was like big deal on northern exposure later what's the show where he's like the matching it's like a crime show numbers i think he yeah yeah so he's now on board basically taking over for the bruce willis role which is odd but but bruce willis was trying to play against type it's more of the character is probably more of a rob morrow type yeah um and then they cast feruza bulk who was like hot off of the craft and Feruza Balk, she's interviewed in the documentary, and she's very Feruza Balk. She's very like what you expect Feruza Balk to be. I was I was very charmed by her just crazy manic energy. But, oh yeah, she's all over yeah. the place. She she's got a real um we talk about how much we love Juliet Lewis in Yellow Jackets. Mm-hmm. She's kind of got a real Juliet Lewis kind of just vibe, just energy coming off of her. Yeah. Where you just feel like there's part of her that just wants to crawl out of her skin. Yeah. You know? But so she's cast as this movie's version of, quote, Panther Woman. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Spoilers for violent Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, well, she becomes Richard Stanley's, like, best friend and biggest champion on the movie. So everything's, like, 
kind of going well. They get Stan Winston to do the effects. And one thing I will okay. say, I'm, I'll get to my feelings on this movie, which I've actually seen more than once. One thing I will say is the special effects are, I mean, they're 90s, you know, but they're right. really good. You know, Stan Winston was like, I mean, I remember did, like Jurassic Park. Yeah, I remember watching it and not being like lame. You know what yeah. I mean? I remember watching it and being like, hmm. Yeah, the makeup effects are like very well done. You yeah. Know? But of course, so this budget, is like just ballooning just yeah and this is around i think when they get um val kilmer who immediately took a dislike to richard stanley (sighs) like the way it's described people describe you know they're like you have these two insane forces on this movie doing everything they could to destroy it one was marlon brando and one was val kilmer and I don't remember who was saying it. It was one of the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, at least Marlon Brando, like, he kind of had fun with it. Like, he was kind of fun about it. And he wasn't mean to people. And so, it was just wild. They were like, Val Kilmer was like a prep school bully. Ugh. And so there's this German actor who I believe plays the Maling character. Okay. Um, I'm like, I'm going, act- I'm going back to IMDb. <laughs> I cannot remember the actor's name, but he's talking about how Val Kilmer comes up at him at one point. He's like, yeah, I saw you in this movie. I really, I really, I thought you did really great work. He was like, oh, thank you, Val Kilmer. He's like, I just want you to know if it ever comes down to like you and me, it's going to be me. And like walks away. Like in a fight or like. Unclear. <laughs> career wise. So he was doing. Th- so like. Apparently, just like one of the first scenes they're shooting, what? No, I just, I don't understand what that means. (laughs) I don't, I mean, it just means like, I've got the bigger dick, I think. I mean, I think that's, that's the, that's the subtext. Like, you may think you're a good actor, but I'm going to win. It's like the guy's like, I'm the fucking like 18th build in this movie. Like, (laughs) has nothing, like, I'm in fucking monster makeup through the whole thing. Like, (laughs) sir, I am playing a, he's also got a great tiger, half human hybrid. Like, I don't, we can't, we're not on the same page. He's also got a great Marlon Brand. I'm I'm jumping around because at this point, Marlon Brando's not even on set, but he's got, this great Marlon Brando story where he's like Marlon Brando comes up he's like oh yeah so you're German and he's like yeah yeah I'm German and he's like I speak a little German he's like okay he's like <laughs> the guy's like huh he's like the guy's like uh, and he's like oh I think you're talking about cat on a hot tin roof and he's like no <laughs> and it's just gibberish and so someone else is like oh I think he was trying to say something like one bird in the bu- hand is better than two in the bush or something okay and I think someone who had heard it before was like oh that's what he's saying and, and Marlon Brando was like yeah and it was like mm, and like did not like the German guy after that because the, because literally he was just speaking gibberish at it like the guy was like I don't know what he was saying, but it wasn't German. <laughs> so. This is like, again, this is what you get when you're like, I know you and I have this discussion a lot, but this is the problem with talking about people as if they are talented is mm-hmm. that you get this kind of shit that happens. And suddenly people are like, I don't need to learn my lines. I don't need to show up on time. Oh, I don't yeah. need to like wipe my ass. I don't need to do anything because yeah. I am talented guys and my talent will show up and will make everything better. And I think Marlon Brando is the epitome of like, he's, that's 100% false. He's that. And then he's, but he's also like, none of this means anything. This is all garbage what we're doing anyway. So who cares? It doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. Like he's, he was just, 
I'm glad I never had to die to another brand of Jesus. <laughs> um so anyway so Val Kilmer just decides he hates Richard Stanley so like he's okay. doing everything he can to undermine him Ugh. within this is like two days into production Jesus. um they're shooting one of the first scenes and it's a scene where there's like a fight scene and the Rob Morrow character I think gets punched and then it like cuts to black then it cuts to him waking up and like Montgomery is there so it's like you know punched you get knocked out we've all seen this movie we've right. seen movies before and then you, you know you come to and there's like a time jump well apparently Val Kilmer was like Richard like in front of the entire crew he's like can you explain to me how this is going to cut together and he's like yeah so it's going to be and there's a punch and then he's knocked out and then he like you know we fade to black and we fade up and you're there he's like mm, yeah that's not going to work that's not going to cut together he's like it will this is like standard standard like, movie shot yeah. like, that doesn't cut no that doesn't cut. like you know just doing stuff like that apparently he was also calling bob shea back at new line being like i don't know why you've got me here with this guy this guy doesn't know what he's doing blah 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 blah, blah. and poor richard stanley he's only done like yeah little indie fucking weird british films before so he's yeah he, it does and i will say i have seen hardware and i have seen dust devil nothing in either of those movies would make me think this is a guy who could handle like a huge set with big egos and yeah you know, they're, they're low budget indie movies you know yeah so he was clearly in over his head and there's a lot of stories of like where he was you know during the pre-production they had all gone to queensland australia like i think it was a settlement called cairns in okay. australia and it's like in the middle of the fucking rainforest in australia like far north australia and he had rent Richard Stanley had rented like a villa or a house or something. And there were like days where like they were trying to set up meetings and do location scouts and he just wouldn't leave the house. Stuff like that. At one point there, I think this is when things are starting to fall apart. This is literally in the first few days of production. One of the special effects guys sees him walking around like kind of Richard Stanley kind of manically pacing, I think smoking a cigarette. And he's like, how's it going, Richard? He's like, I just got to make it look like I'm shooting something at all times. Like they just got to think I'm shooting something. And the guy's like, okay. <laughs> like, so oh. the guy's kind of unraveling. Yeah. Things are going crazy. And then they get hit by a hurricane, Oof. which, of course, destroys the set. Marlon Brando's not even here yet. Okay. Like, in the downtime, <laughs> while uh, they're trying to rebuild this set, Rob Morrow called, uh, like, and he's interviewing the documentary too. And he's just like, I'd be in a scene and, like, no one told me what was happening. So I'm just, like, making up stuff to do in the scene. And then, like, beast characters are attacking me. I'm like, eh, you know, like, he's like, oh. no one was actually directing me to do anything. Oh. And, and I think uh, Val Kilmer was not good to him. It sounds like Val Kilmer was just terrible to everybody on this movie. Mm-hmm. At one point i don't know if this is in the before or after richard stanley got fired but there was a focus puller who's doing something um i think he was like pulling, pulling focus mm-hmm. um looking into the lens or whatever and val Kimmer standing behind him with a lit cigarette and like lit his sideburn on fire like just and so then the crew starts rebelling against Val Kilmer. So while they're on the downtime because of the hurricane, Rob Morrow calls Bob Shea a new line. And he's like, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm really happy to be working with you guys. Um, 
But this is a fucking You need nightmare. to let me out of this movie. <laughs> you need to come like, and get me now. He was like in tears, like, please let me out of this. This oh is my insane. God. I can't do this. I miss my family. Let me go home. And so Bob Shea was like, okay, fine. So they like let him go. And they ended up casting uh, David Thewlis, who's mm-hmm. a pretty great British actor. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about his experience. He was not interviewed in the documentary. I don't know anything about his experience on the film. But like. I feel like that in and of itself is telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. Well, I think he's just like, let's pretend that didn't happen. He was yeah. like, thank you to the bank. Bye bye. <laughs> <Right? laughs> like, well, give like, me my check. Is, I'm done. Like, what is uh, Michael Caine's quote about Jaws: "The Revenge"? Oh, um, that it like paid. Like, wait, it, they like, were like, they were like, what? How do you feel being in such a terrible movie? He's like, well, I never saw it, but I'll tell you what I did see is the beach house that it paid for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might be that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. David Thewlis was like, <laughs> give me my paycheck. Uh, send me the residuals. <laughs> if there are any, uh, right. <laughs> don't call me for reshoots. Don't call me yeah. for what is it when you have to go in and like redub like your own lines? ADR. Yeah. Don't Additional call me for ADR. Additional, yeah. Don't call me for that. Uh, I won't be at the premiere. Yeah. I think he's just like scrubbing this off. Of resume. <laughs> just why not? Anyway, so like Rob Morrow, like, you know, he, he was willing to like be interviewed for this documentary yeah. about it. That's um, all I'm saying. I feel like that says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it, literally, Bob Shea's like, the guy was in tears on the phone, oh, like man. begging to get out of this. And so another like other discussions are going on and one of the producers like runs into Val Kilmer, I think in a restaurant and he was like, how's it going Val? And Val's like, this isn't working out, blah, 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 blah. And he's talking about Richard Stanley and he's, and the guy's like, I couldn't disagree. He's like, cause just, he wasn't directing. So like, he's like, I had to call Bob Shea and basically be like, this isn't working. And then I had to like sit there and listen to Bob Shea scream at me for a couple minutes. Uh. And then he was like, well, what do you, and Bob Shea's like, what do you want to do? He's like, we need to make a change. Mm. So Richard Stanley, bye-bye. Kicked off of your own movie. Oh, man. Uh, apparently, as he left, there were all sorts of rumors that he had threatened to burn down the set, that he had threatened <laughs> to bomb the set. He supposedly got, like, he had made friends with, like, a uh, northern Australian Aboriginal person. Uh-huh. And they, like, put cursed stones around the set, supposedly. He's also telling, so back to your whole thing about the warlock and maybe, like, the yes. Apparently, as this is as things are starting to go tits up on the film, like the warlock guy developed some weird disease where his bones just started to crumble. (gasps) (laughs) So like it's like maybe everything just got he was like, and once he started going downhill, all his quote fixes started to reverse. Listen. So yeah. (laughs) That's all you gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) No one can see this, but I'm just Right, <laughs> creating space for for this kind of shit to be real. Yes, one hundred percent. I am certainly not going to come on this podcast and say that warlockery, <laughs> warlockery, is not is real. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Just saying. Um, well, yeah. But so but so they were literally like, we need to get uh Richard Stanley out of here because he's threatening all this stuff. He's like, Man. he's lost his mind. Faruza Balk, when she heard, she like apparently they were all in a sushi restaurant. They told her that he had been fired, and she was like, and again, she was just so Faruza Balk about everything. She's like, I'm gonna cut my own heart out with this sushi knife. Of course she was. And then she went out and got her driver, like one of the set drivers, and was like, drive me to Sydney. And the guy's like, okay. Sydney was 2,500 kilometers away, but they drove to Sydney. (laughs) 
because she was like, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm off this movie because she had been Richard Stanley's biggest defender. Mm-hmm. While her agent and lawyer and stuff were like, Here, look, here's the thing. They're going to sue you and they'll be garnishing your wages until you die. Yeah. But you won't actually have wages because they will make sure you never work. Yeah, they'll be garnishing your, like, Burger King wages. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Now, the fucked up thing is, like, they let Rob Moreau off. Yeah. They didn't let her off. And so I think someone in the documentary kind of made was like, "Mm, sexism. And I think there's some of that. But also, like, Rob Moreau respectfully in tears called. Right, and and was like, please let me out I'm going to cut my heart out with a knife and drive drive 23 hours to get me to Sydney. (gasps) I looked it up. It's 27 hours. (laughs) So, I mean, maybe it was a little bit, like, some sexism. Also, maybe, like, there's one way to handle it and there's another way to handle it. Yes. But so she went back. She was she was successfully like cowed and was like, okay, I'm just gonna see this through. But they were like, we need we need to like neutralize the Richard Stanley problem. So they go to Richard Stanley and they're like, look, we will pay you your entire fee if you go away and you stay at least 40 kilometers from the set. He was like, okay. And then they were like, they sent I think the driver who had driven her to She's this poor driver is like, I'm done, dude. Yeah. I'm done. They sent they sent this driver to pick up Richard Stanley and like make sure he gets to the airport on time because we're sending him back to London. Make sure he's like there in time to get on the plane. And he's like, All I know is I took him to the airport. We were on time. But Richard Stanley disappeared. No one knew where he was. So hold that thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's vanished into the Australian jungle somewhere. Okay. Um or went up in smoke, spontaneously combusted, abducted by aliens. No one. Warlockery. Knew. Warlockery, exactly. <laughs> um, so he's gone. They don't know where he is, but they're like, we need another director. We need someone who can like start directing in like a week. Like someone who <sighs> is. So they're like, let's just get some like workhorse professional. So who do they go to? They go to John Frankenheimer. Mm-hmm. You, I know, have seen at least one John Frankenheimer film because we talked about it on this podcast. Do you remember which one? No. <laughs> it's The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, um, okay. John Frankenheimer is like, he's he's since passed away. There are also weird rumors that he's actually Michael Bay's biological father. I don't know. Like, there's all sorts of weird stuff. But I'm going to look um, it up. <laughs> <laughs> but John Frankenheimer, he, he, like, he had started in TV in the 50s. He had gone on to do many, many well-respected, well-received Hollywood films. Probably most known for two movies, the movie Seconds, and then, which I believe... Can't remember who who starred in that. And then of course the mentoring candidates. He also did a movie called Black Sunday. Okay. Um, you know, he's just like a venerated Hollywood pro, but like older. He'd had some bombs. He was like not in the top of anyone's list. And he was looking for work. Okay. Um, he wanted to like stay relevant. So they went to him and they're like, Can you do this? He had no he did not like the script. He had no interest in the subject matter. He had already done a monster movie before, a movie called The Prophecy in the late 70s. And it's a terrible, terrible film. Okay. It was just like not he's like, I mean, I need a job. So he took the job. Okay. He shows up on set and Faruza Balk, who clearly did not have a good experience with him. Okay. Was like this old man comes in in his like director's garb with like a jungle hat on. Sure. Yeah, why not? Let's let's just really <laughs> lean into this. Right. And he and he's like starts off being like real humble with everybody, where he's like, he goes to Faruza Balk, he's like, look. 
I don't know any more than you do. I'm just here to do a job. Like, I just need you to be on my side. She was like, that lasted three days. Three days later, he's screaming at me. He's calling me names, all this stuff. And then I, they're interviewing, like, a couple people who had worked with him before. In the, and they're like, yeah, he's one of those, like, old-time Hollywood screamers that you just don't get anymore. And he's like, uh, barking orders. <laughs> like, and the, all these people start, like... In the documentary, there's this like little montage of them impersonating him, and it's very like gross, like get get over to camera B and make sure you know that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's that. Well, he <laughs> immediately does not hit it off with Marlon Brando. Oh no, never mind. Marlon Brando's not on set yet. But he and Val Kilmer. Jesus, we haven't even gotten to Marlon Brando being on set yet. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! Like things really go tits up when Marlon Brando shows up. Okay, but he, so he and he and he's already screaming at Faruza Balku. I think is just sort of like stuck in a terrible situation. He and Val Kilmer are like immediately butting heads because Val Kilmer is butting heads with everybody, and then Marlon Brando shows up. And this okay. is where I say this is the opposite of your story because you're talking about beefcake Marlon Brando in a t-shirt well marlon brando no one knew what he was gonna do like well he shows up in the first time anyone sees him the first scene with him and first of all says like we're all standing around and then this like car starts pulling up and there's this like weird white thing and the car is like is this another ant like beast creature that we haven't been introduced to no it's marlon brando and if anyone's ever we need to post a picture on social media of him in this movie his face is totally painted white he's wearing sunglasses and this weird like headdressy veil thing uh-huh. and like she describes it like as like he's wrapped himself in like white muslin and like sort of formed a diaper out of it uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he shows up and he's doing this really weird pseudo british accent yep. that no one asked him to do yep and like, <laughs> and one of the producers was like on the radio at some point. Talking, he was like, "Is this like Marlon Brando's look for the movie?" They're like, "Well, his idea is like he doesn't like being out in the sun, so this is how he dresses. It's just for when he's in the sun." And he's like, "Is he going to change his accent when he goes inside too?" Marlon Brando was listening on another radio and was like, "That guy's banned from the set." I so, just, it looks like some type of weird mm-hmm. kabuki. It really it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to post that on social It's It's pretty amazing. And so Marlon Brando shows up. He has not read the script. Uh, Shades of Apocalypse Now. He didn't show up, like, he was supposed to show up on a certain day. And apparently everyone was, like, super nervous. One of the reasons Frankenheimer agreed to do the movies, he wanted to work with Marlon Brando. Okay. And there were, I think one of the people who, uh, I think his assistant director who always would work with him was like, yeah, before we did the movie, he would always refer to Marlon Brando as a genius. Not so much after. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> So Marlon, so like Marlon Brando is supposed to show up on a particular day. He doesn't show up. Everyone's like, apparently Frankenheimer was like really nervous. Like we really need to be like ready for Brando. Well, he doesn't show up on that day. He doesn't show up on the next day. No one knows where he is. His agents can't find him. Finally, a week later, he shows up. Everyone's ready for him to come to set. An hour goes by. Another hour goes by. Another hour. Finally, around 3 p.m., he's like, I'm ready now. And like... That's when he reveals himself as this weird white ghosty thing. It looks, it does look <laughs> like those people. It he he was that late because he was covering himself head to toe in like zinc in zinca. Mm-hmm. You remember that stuff? Right. And it, it like he it's it well, is weird. truly bu- like bizarre. I'll get to it in a little because, like I said, I want to get to my opinions on this movie like towards the end. But there are some of his choices where you're like, what the fuck? And then there's some where you're like. Eh. 
like I can kind of see he was going for something. Yeah. Least. Um, but like he had not read the script, so he's like he has an earpiece and he just has an assistant reading the lines to him, and he's just like repeating. And at one point he like stops him all the take and he's like, Carolyn, I told you to stop acting, I guess, to his assistant. <laughs> At one point, Feruza Balt comes up to him. She's like, I mean, do you have a minute? I just, I'd like to talk to you about our characters or how, like, how they are supposed to interact. And he's like, no. And she's like, but I mean, I would, and he's like, look, you're beautiful. I'm here. They're paying us. This is all bullshit. The script doesn't make sense. Just relax. Who cares? And that was just apparent. So he's just like, mm. like, he just doesn't give a fuck about wow. this movie. Okay. He's just making shit up on the day, on the daily. Like, so every day, Frankenheim, and there were, someone put it as like, every day was like trying to fix problems that he had created. Because he's wanting different props and stuff. He So I told you the story of the, the German guy, and he's speaking gibberish German, and he gets yeah. mad at the German. The German guy is supposed to be like the third or fourth lead. Well, after this, he's like relegated almost to an extra. Meanwhile, do you remember the actor's name is Nelson De La Rosa? He's the yeah. little person in the movie. Okay. He was the shortest man in the world at this point. Uh-huh. At that point, I think he was like two feet tall. Uh-huh. And he spoke Spanish. So at one point, Marlon Brando goes up to him and says, yeah, so I speak a little bit of Spanish. And he starts going, bur, 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 you know, just gibberish again. Uh-huh. And But apparently, <laughs> Nelson De La Rosa was like, si, senor, si, senor. And Marlon Brando was like, I love him. And so Marlon Brando insisted he's going to be my, like, my constant companion. So that's why every shot has him as like a little miniature version of Marlon Brando. This was all Marlon Brando's idea. This did go on to... Inspire the character of Mini Me <laughs> in the oh, Oscar Powers shit. movie. Apparently, Mike Myers has confirmed that that was it's it's directly making fun of Island of Doctor Moreau. Oh God! And Marlon, it basically like Marlon Brando is sort of a Doctor Evil character, <laughs> but it was just because the guy like humored him in this like fake Spanish thing. Oh wow! He at one point was like, "I think I need to be wearing an ice bucket on my head." So they so there's a scene where he's literally wearing an ice bucket on his head and Feruza Balk is like pouring ice into the top of it. And even in the scene, I think you can see not the character of Panther Woman or whatever her name's uh-huh. supposed to be, but like Feruza Balk being like, What the fuck am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? Oh wow. Okay. So it was just stuff like that constantly. Well, Marlon Brando took an immediate hatred towards Val Kilmer. And apparently that was like a mutual feeling. They both hated John Frankenheimer, who, by the way, John Frankenheimer was specifically hired for his, quote, ability to wrangle difficult actors. This really put a dent in that reputation. Yeah. Um. So there's one famous story where they're sitting around. It's a night shoot, I think. And, like, no one's coming to set. They're like, what? It's like three in the morning. We haven't shot a thing. And finally the word gets out. Well, Marlon Brando won't come out of his trailer until Val Kilmer comes out of his trailer. But Val won't come out of his trailer until Marlon Brando comes out of his trailer. So we're just waiting. It's just, they're playing chicken. We're just waiting. Oh my and meanwhile, God. like the assistant director guys, like who had worked with John Frankenheimer a bunch over the years, he says, I think John was starting to get kind of depressed. And I would just like go seek him out on set and try to cheer him up. <laughs> and apparently like Frankenheimer called Bob Shea out of the blooms. Like, I don't know you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad to be here, but this is insane. Like yeah. I can't, I don't know what to do. So it just goes on and on and on. Meanwhile, the extra, there's like a hundred extras all in like monster makeup. Yeah. And I guess they put out a specific call like we want 
quote freaks we want amputees we want you know yeah and so all these so apparently it was just like burning man like with the extras through the whole shoot they're just we're partying and we have fire eaters and stilt walkers and like (sighs) they're just having a great time well one day the driver who had gotten fired because he drove Feruza bulk to sydney okay got back on hired back on as one of the extras and (laughs) yeah Apparently, he was fired twice and then hired in different positions. Okay. Like, three times. But at this point, he's an extra. He's a background actor. And they're just, like, waiting to shoot one day because, like, nothing's getting done. Apparently, the script, like, one lady's like, I was supposed to be there for three weeks and I ended up being there for six months. No. Uh, so, at one point, the couple of the extras, they're, like, hanging. Uh, there's two different stories in, in, in the documentary. The extra stories, they're wandering, like, through the jungle and they're walking up this river. And they find this, like, strange guy. Or they hear stories story about there's this strange guy up here and he's talking about how val kilmer ruined his life they're like who the fuck this is richard stanley so they go find him he'd started hanging out on some guy's farm nearby just to like decompress and was like hiding out and he's like getting back to nature and stuff so the extras are like we wandered up there and we find he's got like a big cast iron tub out by the river with like a fire underneath because he's heating up the water so he can take a bath and they go up and they're like they're like you should come back with us and he's like no he's like well that would be breaking the con i might not get paid anything because i'm supposed to stay 40 kilometers away mm-hmm. they're like i mean we're the extras no one gives a fuck what we're doing he's like okay so he goes back and he starts he's reading script pages and he's just like what are they doing to my movie so finally he's like i need you guys to get me on set and they're like how the fuck are we gonna do that you're like i mean you're literally a wanted man yeah he's like give me that and he takes one of their like dog masks he's like i'll just wear this he's like teach me how to move so i can be so richard stanley snuck on set and he's like an extra in a bunch of scenes like there's one shot of him like behind val kilmer and like (laughs) he's just like watching the whole thing apparently so the the assistant director who frankenheimer had brought on so he didn't know richard stanley he says at one point He's like, all the extras, you know, between shots, super hot. So whenever, like, they're not needed, they're taking their masks off and they're drinking water. He's like, except for one guy, he never took his mask off. And I was like, is this, this guy's going to, like, keel over or something. So I went up to talk to him. And I was like, are you okay? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. And he's like, he had a very different accent because you know, he's South African, not Australian. Mm-hmm. And so the assistant director walks away. He's like, is that, could that be? And so rumors start to spread uh-huh and so everyone knows that richard stanley is one of the extras but no one could figure out who which one because they're all protecting him okay um, <laughs> they're all like on his side apparently and so everyone's like oh my god he's gonna burn the set to-. and apparently in richard Stanley's like there's a bunch of scenes where like literally i'm just destroying stuff like they're like here's a can of gas light this on fire he's like if i wanted to i could have like everyone was afraid he was gonna like burn the set down he's like i could have but oh he didn't god. okay okay <laughs> so i mean that like there's not a whole lot more to the story other than it was just a terrible experience for everyone involved apparently john frankenheimer said about val kilmer he said even if i was directing a film called the life of val kilmer i wouldn't have that prick in it um and then he famously like when val kilmer rapped like on his last day he's like all right that's a wrap on kilmer now get that motherfucker off my set yeah um wow so the movie's over i think it was like an eight month shoot or something oh my god they ended up ballooning. The budget ballooned to $40 million, which by today's <sighs> standards probably doubled. It's probably $80 million movie. Ugh. Remember, it's supposed to be like a $10 million movie. And like Bob Che of New Lines, just like, uh, he was just like, we're going to lose money on this. He's like, but it's better to like release something than nothing. You know, we'll, we'll lose less money. Right. 
So they managed to cobble a movie together. Okay. <laughs> and they released it, and we've all seen it. And, and it's we've got all a, seen it. <laughs> it ended up making $50 million, but on a $40 million budget, that doesn't even break even. Right. It has 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Fantastic. I think it swept the Razzies that year. Oh, God. Um, Roger Ebert is on record calling it Brando's worst film and his worst performance. It's really um, bad. Everyone's just like, yeah, this is an unmitigated disaster. And it was already infamous. And it hurt a lot of careers. Like, mm. Val, it actually really damaged Val Kilmer's career. And if you think about it, like, Val Kilmer was like the hot shit after Batman Forever. And after Island of Dr. Moreau, kind of not. I mean, he would pop up in things, but like mm-hmm. it was 2002, I think he did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And that was like seen as a comeback film. Right, right, um, right, right. That's also one of the stories where people are like, oh, Kilmer's great. We loved working with him. So I think he, and in fact, I have a friend who will remain nameless who worked on a movie that Kilmer was in in mm-hmm. New Mexico. And I asked him, I was like, what was Val Kilmer like? Because I knew all these stories about him. And he was like, uh-huh. he was great. He was friendly. He was talking to the crew. Like he was one of the friendliest people I've ever worked with. So, I mean, this seems to maybe have been an anomaly. I don't know. Um, okay. All right. We'll make but, space for that. <laughs> we'll make space for it. I don't think it excuses it. <laughs> no. Pretty much like between him and Brando, they just sabotaged the movie. And apparently, Frankenheimer was also out of his depth. And I will say, like, I there are some John Frankenheimer films I love, and there are some I've seen that are terrible. And he seems like yeah, he's a good director if everything's going well. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. like, and he's also not a director with like a vision. Quote mm. quote. He's just like a he's like a he's there up, to like pump out shots and get your shot list, you know that kind of thing. So the movie, like I said, the movie was released, failed, 22% on Rotten Tomatoes, critically despised. I mean, I remember the reviews at the time were like. Critics were actually, it was like Battlefield Earth was like the next film. I remember the oh. critics were actually just like, what the actual fuck is this? Yeah. yeah. So what happened to Richard Stanley afterwards? Yes. Well, after being fired from the island, <laughs> Stanley, he ended, he made two documentaries. Uh, one was about the search for the Holy Grail. Another was about voodoo. They played and were well-received at film festivals around the world. Um, they're both released as part of a Dust Devil box set re-releases, like DVD extras. Um, he also made a number of short films. He did one called Children of the Kingdom in 2003, which I just watched. It's super weird. It's like two minutes long. It's super weird. And then a sci-fi short film called The Sea of Perdition in 2006. And then he did a short film called Black Tulips in 2008 that was apparently about a werewolf. I have not seen that one. Uh, He's worked as a screenwriter for other filmmakers. He wrote the script The Abandoned, which was a horror movie by UK-Spanish-Bulgarian (laughs) co-production, directed by a Spanish director named Nacho Cerda. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he did a couple movies with this Nacho Cerda. He also wrote the Italian horror thriller Imago Mortis. in 2009 now he was finally able to make another feature film in 2018 so more than 20 years later yeah with his adaptation of hp lovecraft's the color out of space starring nicholas cage so another crazy actor it was released in 2020 i've seen it it's one of the better lovecraft adaptations uh but it is this movie where you're like watching it you're like there's this really good movie and then there's a lot of cage rage happening and i don't Mm. understand i don't understand the cage rage right just cage raging but you know that's cage yeah he's also been talking about he wants to do a reboot of the island of dr moreau he calls it a meta textual reboot he's been talking about this since 2007 unfortunately 
2021, and I don't know much more about this. I just stumbled on this as I was finishing up my research today. 2021, he was accused by a screenwriter named Scarlett Amaris, who he had worked with before. She said that they had been in an abusive relationship. As a result, Spectravision, which produced the Colorado Space, has cut ties with him. In October of that year, 2021, he filed a criminal complaint against her, accusing her of harassment and libel. So... Mm. I who knows I, right. I you know full yeah. disclosure I I'm I've always been like when you hear the stories of Richard Stanley and stuff I've always like kind of been on his side and he is such a character when you watch him interviewed and stuff but you got to make space for like mm, yeah maybe not maybe not such an innocent we don't yeah. know uh, who yeah. knows so that is the story of the shit show <laughs> that is the island of Dr. Moreau so and like I said, I want to. So you've seen it, right? I saw it once, probably, probably not too long back. after it came out. Yeah. What do you remember? Like, what's just your takeaway of the film? I remember being like, what? What is this? Like, you know, I had no, I didn't know anything about the original story. I don't think I even really knew a whole lot about the drama surrounding the movie, but I was still just like, oh, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. and just being like, this is. Oh, this is just weird. So it's like, so here's my take on the movie. It's not a good movie. I'm not going to sit here and say it is a good movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> I actually think it's a very interesting movie. There's like a lot of like ideas in there that, man, if this thing had gelled the way like Apocalypse Now did. Because uh-huh. a lot of people, like they'll watch Apocalypse Now and they'll have the same, like, what the actual fuck is this uh-huh. uh, reaction to that film. So it's like that, like borderline between genius and madness kind of mm-hmm. thing, or just mm-hmm. chaos and creation, or you know, because mm-hmm. um, like as far as I'm concerned, it comes together in Apocalypse Now. It does not come together in Island of Doctor Moreau. But there's like, it, like there's interesting stuff. It's a very weird movie. It's a big mess, but it's amb- it's like an ambitious mess. Like mm-hmm. they were trying stuff, and as crazy as he is, like. There is something about Brando's performance that's like he's trying something. I don't quite know what it is, but this is not a like phony. Even though he didn't read the script and stuff, it's not that he's phoning it in. Like you can tell when an actor just kind of doesn't care and is like not. He's he's it's just like he's like some weird space alien, like trying to figure something out. Yeah. And there's like I personally like the the whole like crazy white get up with the white face paint and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm like. It kind of fits, like, if you look at, like, the Moreau character as kind of a, like, Colonel Kurtz type, you know, who's, like, gone into the jungle and lost his mind. And yeah. Kind of, there's something where it's, like, you could see the guy, like, ending up like that. You know? Right. But then you've got the ice bucket on the head. And you're, like, huh? You know? So, yeah, none of it works. But, it, but like I said, I saw it recently because I, I read Daughter of Dr. Moreau. And it kind of prompted me to go back and watch this. And I mm-hmm. was, like... It's terrible. It's a terrible film, but it's like, it's terrible in a way that I'm really glad that I've seen it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like there's some terrible movies that are just forgettable. This is not a forgettable film. Uh. There are parts of it that will stick with you for better or for worse. Yeah. Even if it's just in a like 20 years from now, you'll look back and be like, what the fuck? Wait, what the fuck was that? Yeah. That happened, you know? Yeah. Ay, ay, so, ay. There you go. <laughs> there we go. The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, uh, okay. We've been on this thing for like two and a half hours. So I'm going to uh-huh. end the episode here. 
Yeah. I'm glad you're back. I'm glad we did not ha- like, we didn't have a, like nothing was sad. Stuff was no. strange, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> nothing yeah. was creepy. Right. Uh, I'd say all in all, hopefully this is a great episode. Yeah. Um, I had fun. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, subscribe, rate, review, um, do all those things. Share the podcast with your friends and your grandma uh, (laughs) if she likes to hear two weirdos talk about weird stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next time. Until then, stay weird, stay curious. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest.